Well, hello everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio. I hope you're doing very well. I guess two seconds, two minutes, two words or so on the uh, NSA uh, scandal. Uh, so this, of course, is the scandal where the government has been strong-arming the data providers for you know, Google, Microsoft, Verizon, Sprint, a couple of others um, to hand over uh, all the records of your phone calls and your emails. Now, they say that they cannot listen to the contents. They can't read your emails and they can't listen to your phone calls, which, you know, if you believe them, well, then you are unfortunately too unintelligent and too bad at pattern recognition to um, to really be able to follow me to the end of the sentence. So I'm not going to worry too much about you. But even if this is true, even if they can't listen to the content of your uh, phone calls or the contents of your emails, there's still a huge amount of information that can be gleaned just out of who you call. Let's say you're calling Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's say you're calling um, a depression helpline. Let's say you called a suicide hotline. Let's say you called a helpline for teen homosexuals who are having trouble with the brutality of homophobia. Uh, let's say you called a rape crisis hotline. Let's say you called a pregnancy hotline. Uh, let's say you are making repeated calls, say, to an oncologist. Uh, it doesn't matter really whether they know the content of that. They sure as heck know what's going on based on just who you call. And I myself have always lived online as if uh, everything is recorded and everything is available to anyone who wants it. That's just the reality of the digital age. This information is uh, a huge, huge boon to the government. It gives them the capacity to strong arm people in a way that they've previously only dreamed of and to threaten people. It creates a chilling effect. If you know that everything is being recorded and perhaps available to the government, uh, it creates a chilling effect on free speech, and it's a little tough for them to wave the boogeyman of terrorism uh, and say, as Obama says, God, the man is uh, just a, a, a puff of smoke. He is the smoke monster from Lost when it comes to the truth, because he says, well, I welcome the debate on the balance between freedom and security. Uh, this is the guy who welcomes the debate, whose administration has repeatedly uh, denied and rejected uh, our capacity to find out what is going on with all this data. So the fact that he claims he welcomes the debate, I don't know. <laughs> with government, it's just the rule of opposites. You know, the NSA was established with the goal of never spying on American citizens uh, or internally to the country. So whenever a mandate is created, you know it's the, it's the actual opposite, right? The, the war on drugs is a war to sustain drugs, which is to sustain massive expansions of state power and, you know, not incidentally to make a cop's life a whole lot easier. You know, chasing after murderers, chasing after rapists, chasing after people who, that's hard work, you know, um, whereas, you know, busting low-level drug dealers is pretty easy. Yeah, I mean, it's easy, easy peasy. And also, uh, if you uh, get yourself trying to control a very lucrative trade, you get yourself a whole tsunami of bribes that can occur, and that's pretty tasty for the police. 
So, you know, more power, easier work, and lots of supplemental income through bribes. That's a pretty sweet deal. And the war on drugs is not the war to eliminate drugs, but the war to shake down um, people who like to sell and consume drugs. Uh, and so this it's achieving its ends perfectly. And so the NSA was created to not spy on Americans. Just take the word not out and you've got the truth. I mean, the government is just the opposite world. Uh, and uh, if you ever want to know the truth behind the government, uh, this is something that comes out of Atlas Shrugged. You know, she says that later in the day, towards the end, uh, you could only find out what was happening by uh, re referencing the strenuous denials of the state. <laughs> there are no riots in Colorado. It's treason to say that there are. Well, okay, that's how you know there are riots. And we welcome the debate means that they don't welcome the debate <laughs> at all. And you can see the strong arming going on. I saw the New York Times a couple of days ago wrote online that the Obama administration has lost all credibility. Has lost all credibility. Now, that's exactly the same as a crack addict saying that crack has lost all credibility for him. I mean, they've been such slavish addicts to Obama that for them to say he's lost all credibility is, was quite shocking. I mean, for the New York Times. I mean, I mean, it's like the Freeman turning on Reagan, for God's sakes. And, and of course, they got their calls from the government, and I'm sure that they got the calls which said, if you let this stand, we are going to cut you off from all information. You know, because, I mean, the reporters used to do reporting, right? Which was, they would actually go and investigate and try and find out the truth. And that was time-consuming, that was expensive, and that was legally risky. You get sued for printing things that are unsupported or unsubstantiated, and it was very complicated and so on. And now, you know, reporters have a whole lot easier time of it because what they do is they go ask the government stuff and print that, and they call that, they call that reporting. It's incredibly dangerous. We talk about freedom of the press, for God's sakes. The idea that the American media is going to fight for freedom of the press is ludicrous. I mean, all they are is a third-party amplification of government propaganda. The idea that they're going to somehow fight for freedom of the press is... What they want is the freedom to make money without really working. Hey, what did the government say? I'll make a phone call. Oh, unnamed sources in the government say X. You know, how about finding out whether it's true or not? No, you see, that takes a lot of work. And that might piss off the people who are giving me information. So, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. So, I'm going to fight for freedom of the press. They will fight for their income. You know, lots of people will fight for their income. And from that standpoint, uh, the government infringing upon their rights, so to speak, is going to cause a bit of a backlash. But the New York Times, I'm sure, got the call. You know, we're going to cut you off from information. We're going to actually, you might actually have to work for a goddamn living. You might actually have to do something other than parse government statements through your uh, slight language reorganizer and call it news all the government propaganda that's fit to print. And so later in the day, the New York Times, in its great wisdom, decided to amend its statement, which says the Obama administration not has lost all credibility, period, but has lost all credibility in this particular issue. And normally, of course, whenever they edit an article, they put edit notes at the bottom. This one, they declined to put edit notes while changing. Fundamentally, the point of the story, they declined to point out that it had been changed. Fortunately, of course... With the internet, this stuff can be caught and shared uh, pretty quickly. But I hope that it helps people to just realize that you simply are not going to get the truth from any of these 
mouth breathing weasel, ba- weasel bags of stuffed propaganda wins. It's um, it's all it's all nonsense. I mean, I um, I long for the day when people stop even tuning into the mainstream media. I just long for that day when these ass clowns have to go and get a real job for which their skills are eminently suited, which means that they're going to do propaganda for some third world tin pot dictatorship or in the time on a tradition of truly economically accurate journalism, they will be asking you, will you want fries with that, sir? Anyway, that's it for my intro. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're not shocked. This is not a scandal. I mean, this this being a scandal is like saying it's a scandal for Lindsay Lohan to be in trouble with the law again, or Amanda Bynes. This is not a scandal. This is just the inevitable progress of a catastrophic addiction. So anyway, I hope that helps clarify things, at least from my perspective. I hope you're doing wonderfully well this beautiful, beautiful Sunday. And Mr. JJ, I am eager to hear the questions of wisdom from the wisest listeners in the world. What's on your mind? Uh, <clears throat> well, there's uh, actually a few things. Um, I guess it's... Uh, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll say the, uh, the biggest, most important thing is I have a six-year-old with a woman who, uh, is, um, I guess, uh, she's pretty, uh, totalitarian, I guess. I don't know is the best way that I can describe it. Um, yeah, and I don't know there's, there's that. And uh, I guess now, I'm you, kind authoritarian. Of, what do you mean? She's authoritarian. Does she yell? Does she hit? I mean, what are we talking here? Yeah, that's 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 basically what I'm talking about. Um, she doesn't. Uh, I don't. She she has hit him in the past, um, and I kind of like confronted her on it, and I'm kind of hoping that she doesn't do that anymore. But she still does like yelling and and like you know punishing like. Uh, like go sit in the corner and that kind of stuff. Um, and does she um, does she call him names? Uh, see, I'm going idiot, to assume, uh, disrespectful. You know, does she use moral or insulting words against him? Well, yeah, and I mean, she's got him in a Catholic school. Um, see, I, I the thing is, is I rarely talk to her anymore. I have like I the only time I really see her is when I'm kind of like picking him up or dropping him off, which is like a, it's like an asymptotically low, like it goes down. Basically I'm at the point now where I only get to take him once every uh, month uh, right. for a couple of days. And that's, right. that's looking like it may not, it may not, uh, it may even go even less than that. Here. So, sorry, what's your custody? How often do you get him? I just wanted to make sure I understood. That. Oh, well, I've actually got, we, we went to court uh, um, a few years ago, well, three years ago was when the order was made to, um, <clears throat> she wanted to take him to England because she wanted to get married to somebody in England that she met here because he was here for like a month. And so anyways, we went to court over that and I managed to get an agreement in place that was um, basically said, you know, you can move to England under 
uh, like this, these conditions. It was a, it was a whole bunch of different conditions. And, uh, one of them was, um, okay, well, if you don't move to England by this date, then I get them like every weekend. And then she never moved to England. She still says she's going to, that was like almost two years ago or two or three years ago. And, um, anyways, there was a clause that said, you know, I get them every weekend. And then I got a job where I had to work on weekends. So I was only taking them every two weekends. And then, uh, but the agreement was, you know, I would take them every weekend when I could. And then I got, got to the situation where I could do that again. And, and then she was like, well, sorry, you already changed it. You know? Mm. So, I don't know. Is I, there some reason why you don't have shared custody? Like 50, 50? Well, she, well, I will say that, uh, just at, like financially, I'm, I'm pretty low on the rungs. Uh, to say the least, right? I'm I'm like completely broke, and that's something that I've been trying to work on. It's just recently I've kind of started making changes, like I'll say, like growing up changes, as far as um, uh, I don't know, like you know, I I used to be like I guess pretty addicted to video games, so I basically quit that, and um, now I've got this sales job that I'm like doing okay with and and uh it's it's kind of like a slow start but like it, it does look like there's a lot of potential in it if i can just really do it and it was i think i got off on a tangent there no that's okay that's okay so you don't have uh, custody 50 50 custody because she has more money is that right well she's actually on welfare and um ah. she she lives on the other side of the city and um, takes him like I I wanted fifty fifty custody, but I didn't know he was mine until until he was uh, two months old. So uh, she's been primary well, caregiver. Sorry, just help me help me understand that. So, but weren't you married? I, no, I don't mean sorry, to be um, old fashioned on nope. you or anything, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was uh, we were we were dating for nine months, um, basically. Uh, he was conceived like, I guess we were seeing each other casually to use a euphemism, uh, for a month after we, we broke up. Um, and then, uh, uh, she got a new boyfriend and like literally the last time I ever saw her was the day that uh, my son was conceived. And then, uh, Ooh. so she thought it was this other guy for and over the course of the pregnancy. Right? Yes. Not the most, with not somebody the that you've broken up with. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, go on. Um. And uh, so, anyways, over the course of the pregnancy, she thought it was this other guy. Month or basically had okay. So she has this kid, and she's broken up with this other guy, and um turns out that the kid you know looks nothing like this guy looks exactly like me so uh have you had a alleged father yes i have had a test yeah. okay and it's yours okay yeah he is mine too so um what sort of um, family background what sort of childhood did you have that led well, you into these kinds of decisions and, and i really look i sympathize with everyone involved um no you're you're right you're you're dead on because uh, I'm actually in the process of that was actually I've got a list 
of things that I wanted to talk to you about. And that's, uh, that's a big part of it is, uh, the fact that I, I don't, uh, I haven't talked to my dad in like, uh, six or seven months or something. I, uh, he, he kind of like was pretty, pretty, you know, righteous with the, uh, spanking, not righteous, but you know, he was, he was heavy handed. Yeah. Heavy handed. And, uh, and, um, you know, of course, you know, the rest of my family is like, well, he's not like that anymore. Well, yeah, it's because I'm bigger, you know? Yeah. It's amazing <laughs> how kindly the mugger becomes when you get the knife away from him, right? Suddenly he's all yeah, exactly. nice, right? But, but now I he's mean, reformed. It's like, no, no, I just got the knife away from him. So now he wants to be my friend. I mean, anyway. Go on. Well, yeah. And it was, it was like about a year, I think it was about a year ago where we were at the family barbecue thing and, and he was there and he was, it was me, him and my brother-in-law and my dad, told us this uh, story about how, well, you know, in Singapore, or I think it was Singapore, um, you know, if a kid, if a kid spits, you know, they take a cane to him or something like that. And, well, it might, might not seem like the nicest way to do things, but you can bet your, your ass those kids don't, don't spit on the ground very much, you know? Right. So I, he hasn't reformed at all. It's just... Um, Anyways. And did he, when he, when he spanked you, was it open hand on the butt was it with implements i mean how how did he do it well at uh um he uh well yeah he, he would do that um do what? but at, at at times there were were implements i think at one point he used a wooden spoon and at one point uh my mom actually took uh, my sister and i to the hospital because we were like uh bruised really badly and, and they were kind of like broken up at that point and did anyone at the hospital do anything? Yeah, he he was because uh, when I when I confronted him on on it, he kind of came clean about a lot of stuff, and um, actually told me some interesting tales about my mom that I never really knew. But but um, when uh, when he uh, when he excuse me, I just lost my train of thought there. Um, oh no, just I asked if. Um anyone at the hospital did anything when you came in oh, as a result of battering? Um, okay, so what I, when, I, when I confronted him on the smacking and basically stopped talking to him, uh, he, he did t- tell me that, um, you know, that particular incident, um, he was kind of confronted by, like, authorities or whatnot or police or something. And yeah. basically he, he said, you know, hey, like, you know, my my like I'm in a really rough situation. He was raising the kids, like four of, four of us kids alone by himself while my mom basically divorced him and like went out and partied for like two years or something. And, and so he was like under a lot of stress. So I guess they, they saw that he was under a lot of stress and therefore it was like, you know, yeah, no, because, because a lot of times when, no, it's, I mean, that's, that's of course a lot of times when husbands beat their wives Mm-hmm. with, you know, say, a bat. Because, you know, a wooden spoon to a kid is about the same size and proportion as a bat is to an adult woman. So a lot of times when husbands beat their wives with a bat, what happens is the police come by and they say to the husbands, well, it's okay, see, if you're stressed... Yeah. That's that's what they say. Well, you're stressed, so so that's okay. Right? <laughs> oh, wait, that never happens. Yeah, no. I mean, I knew someone who um, uh, uh, um, uh, punched a wall 
didn't touch his wife, punched a wall, and the cops came and got him and took him straight to jail. Hmm. He, he didn't get to say, well, I didn't sleep well. Yeah. Well, I had a headache. Uh, I stubbed my toe. <laughs> I'm stressed. Yeah. But you see, with children, it's a different matter. Now, I yeah, mean, the reality absolutely. is, I, I mean, I don't know where you're from, and don't tell me, it doesn't matter, but the reality is that in almost every place in the Western world, hitting a child with implements is criminal mm-hmm. assault. Yeah. It's criminal assault sorry, in the eyes of the law. It, sorry, it is criminal assault in the it eyes is, of the law? Yeah. It is to hit children with implements is illegal. Oh, I don't know if, right, he, the, uh, if he used the implement in this specific incident. No, no but it does, doesn't matter. He, if he used implements, mm-hmm. then he's crossed over into criminal land. Yeah, I, I, right. I fully agree with that. Well, and I'm simply pointing out that, you know, um, people have a tough time with this voluntary family stuff. Some people do, right? And, mm-hmm. yeah, but if, if, if your dad was, you know, if your dad was at a, at a park and hit some other children with a wooden spoon, yeah. I mean, he'd, he'd yeah. go to jail. I mean, I was reading the other day, some, some woman was in, in a store and she hit her kid in the face and she was just taken straight to jail. I mean, you go around yep. hitting children with implements, you've just broken the law. Like, you're a criminal. Mm-hmm. Now, you may not get charged, right? All the, the, the childism, mm-hmm. right? All the prejudice against children. Childism is mm-hmm. worse than racism, worse than sexism, and very rarely spoken about. But the prejudice we have against children um, is a prejudice that was never uh, against women. Uh, wife beating has always been illegal. You know, there's this... Um, urban myth that the rule of thumb comes from where you used to be able to beat your wife with something that wasn't wider than a thumb. That's not true. It's just nonsense. It's just propaganda that was invented to make the past the brutal. Uh, child abuse, uh, sorry, uh, wife abuse was always illegal and was always punished And um, uh, because, I mean, women were protected throughout most of human history. They kept from wars, kept from lifeboats, uh, you know, women and children first, that kind of stuff. But our prejudice against children remains so deeply entrenched that we can't even see it. It's the largest and greatest human bias that needs to be addressed. And once that human bias is addressed, uh, so many ills will be cured in the world that human nature will be unrecognizable in the future. But anyway, so I just want to point out that, you know, the people who, who, whose parents hit them with implements, um, I mean, that's, that's criminal behavior. I mean, that, that's criminal behavior against the most helpless and dependent creatures that you can imagine. And, you know, lots of people say, well, geez, you know, if, you know, my, my dad would beat my dogs with a spatula and people get this visceral response, you know, like, oh, my God, your dad would beat your dogs with a spatula. That's horrendous. Right. Oh, and wow, yet yeah, when yeah. you get hit with an implement, people are like, hey, what are you getting your dad for Father's Day? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I never thought of, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's just, you know, we we hold dogs in fucking higher esteem than children people here or children here yeah like i in, in the story of your enslavement there's a, a little clip of a guy who's um, mistreating a dog in an elevator and the comments would pour in about how horrendous that was and how brutal that was and how they just wanted to do terrible things to that guy for how he treated that dog yeah and yet i have had hundreds and hundreds of conversations with people who've been brutalized far worse as children and the comments mm-hmm. simply don't show up I'm sorry, on behalf of the entire human race, how pitiful it is, our conception of the wrongs done against children and our need to protect them. I am sorry. 
that it is not visible to people how wretchedly you were treated, how terrifying an experience that is, and how brutally society ignores what happens uh, to, to children. I'm so sorry. I mean, we really, really need to live in a different world, and damn quickly, where we at least have, let's, let's at least aim for the same sympathy for helpless independent human children as we do for your average uh, Rottweiler who's mistreated by an owner. Let, let's at least try and raise children to the level of sympathy we reserve for rabbits and frogs and and dogs uh, that that to me would be a massive improvement i'm not holding my breath but i'm certainly has, working as hard as hell as i can towards it but i just wanted to mention that and i'm, I'm very sorry and, and here at least i think it's it's visible well yeah and i think that uh i mean not to be too sycophantic here but i mean you've obviously done a lot of good and, and thank you for for i mean if it weren't for you i don't, I don't know i might even be the exact same uh type of uh i mean i would i can pretty much guarantee i wouldn't have uh in a sense like started looking into this type of thing further and i mean i the worst i've ever done to my kid was i i held him like this is kind of before i kind of found out about like i'll say like peaceful parenting and whatnot and um i mean the worst i've ever done was like i held him held his wrist and kind of like gave him a slap on the wrist like just enough to kind of scare him and but even that, I mean, I, in retrospect, is like that was that was bad. You know, I shouldn't have done that. Well, and, listen, uh, I mean, good for you. And look, I, I appreciate your kind words. I really do. But I hope that people who listen to the show, who've who've made steps towards peaceful parenting, you know, they may glance at me and say, hey, good job, Steph. But it's you and people like you who are doing all the work. And I, because I've done the work, I know mm-hmm. how much work it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm like a guy who says, hey, do some sit-ups, you know, <laughs> look at my abs. <laughs> and, and, but, but you are the person who sits there and does, you know, 3,000 crunches a day. Uh, and so you're the one who's actually doing the work. I'm just the one blathering about it. Uh, so um, mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And I'm not trying to deflect your praise. I appreciate that hugely. But uh-huh. I hope that you will keep the majority of, of praise uh, for yourself. Well, and that's, and that's a, and I, I appreciate that. But um, I guess I've got... I'm in a situation now where, you know, he's, you know, he's six and I kind of, I didn't even, you know, open the door towards in a sense volunteerism like Ron Paul, like until about five years ago. So, I mean, I already kind of had put myself in the situation, um, of, uh, having, you know, a child with like a crazy woman. Uh, and now I'm like, how do I, cause, cause I have, ish, I have trouble where, you know, he comes, he comes uh, and you know he starts talking. I'll say about like God and stuff like that. And like I, I don't, I don't explicitly say like, like I do. He knows that you know I don't believe in God, but like I mean he's in a Christ, he's in a Catholic school, you know, and like he's he's gonna he's in grade he's going into grade one soon, and he's getting to the point where they're gonna start giving him assignments similar to what my little you know fifteen year old brother has that says, you know. Like, what are the reasons that you should go to church? You know, like, like, so they're, they're indoctrinating them real, real good, you know, real bad. And, um, and I'm like, you know, I, I grapple with how, what's the best way to, to deal with that. to like, in a sense, minimize the damage. I myself was, was, um, was raised in a, or grew up in a Catholic school as well. And, uh, to be honest with you, I was actually, 
uh, when I came out of high school, I, I kind of had like a, a crisis and, and looked at the fact that there's, you know, there's less Christians in the world than there are Christians. So I, uh, I looked into Buddhism and then sorry, I kind of got there are less, Buddhism. Sorry, you said there are less Christians in the world than there are Christians? Yeah, that's what I... You, I'm not is sure that not that true? Oh, okay. Yes. I, I, sorry, I, I looked at like basically the stats and said that like, okay, Buddhism is the most prolific religion. So here I am supposedly oh, oh, I supposed so to... So fewer Christians than other religions, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And yeah. non-Christians and whatnot. And I just looked at that and I was like, well, what if, you know, if Christianity is the truth, then why aren't there more Christians, you know? And then I got into Buddhism and then I kind of got back into Christianity. And then I finally, uh, when I first started listening to your podcast, like you would, you would go into like the, the, uh, the atheism arguments or the, the anti whatever arguments. And, uh, and I, they would kind of like, I would like everything else that you said, but then those would kind of like, I'd be like, ah, you know, and I'd almost like skip over those podcasts. But right. and then I think it was the one where you outlined like 50 different contradicting lines in the Bible that I was like, okay, wait a minute. I should probably take a more honest look at that. And, and now I finally, like, honestly, the day that I kicked religion it was like, all of a sudden I could see clear. It was like this veil just got lifted over my head and I was finally able to just be like, like, I remember I had this, uh, this, uh, this moment where I like looked at, you know, like right after I kind of accepted kind of like once and for all that there is, you know, like there's no God any more than there are unicorns and leprechauns. I kind of, I, I looked at what happened in China where like, you know, there's, there's like kids that are killed for the sole fact that they're not male. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, I had the urge to pray. And then I was like, well, I can't, I can't, it's, that's not going to do anything. And then I was like, oh, well, I guess I might have to like do what I can in the real world to try and work on that. And how can I do that? So it was, it was just really, I don't know. That's another tangent. I'll tell but. you, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, um, of course, I hugely appreciate that you stuck with it. And I, I know it's challenging. You know, people look at, philosophy um like a buffet and i say this having done it myself too you know that speaks to me well that helps me well that appeals to me i like oh wait oh i don't like that one that you know like um you you, you know philosophy unfortunately is, is not a pick and choose buffet right philosophy yeah. is principles and the principles take you and i have discomfort with some of them and you have discomfort with some of them but nonetheless you know we owe ourselves and the world the truth and it's not a buffet uh, but people people who are used to religion are used to buffets right I mean, Christianity and, and Islam yeah. and Judaism, yeah, I mean, exactly. all buffets, right? People just pick whatever yeah. that appeals to them. If you're an angry guy, you tend to be Old Testament. If you're a hippie-dippy <laughs> New Age guy, you tend to be New Testament. If, you, if you're meek, hey, turn the other cheek. If you're not meek, hey, an eye for an eye, bastards, right? Uh, and, you know, if, yeah, if, totally. um, if you want to be nice to your children, then you say, well, whatever you do to the least of them, you do unto me, says Jesus. And if you want to not be nice to your children, spare the rod and spoil the child and... I mean, it's oh, it's yeah. just a buffet that amplifies your personal prejudices into a universal good, which is incredibly dangerous uh, and very toxic. So I'll tell mm -hmm. you my approach to it. I mean, my daughter is asking why do some buildings have crosses on them? And I said, target practice. No, I didn't. Um, and <laughs> I said, um, uh, so I'm, I'm answering the questions. Now, uh, I, of course, have uh, sworn an oath uh, to do not lie to my daughter. Uh, to not lie to my daughter. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I must impose unasked for truths upon her. Does that make sense? 
un- unasked for truths? Yes. So, for instance, she will ask me, and I will tell her. We co- I don't. I don't use the word God uh, because. Um, I don't want to lay words into her mind that have emotional resonance in the culture because that's unfair. That's like one musical instrument in the band is 20 times the volume of the others. That's just going to screw up the mix, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so we call him Big Invisible Guy. I like Big Invisible okay. Guy because it's an acronym for the first word. That's kind of cool. But we talk about Big Invisible Guy, and she's fascinated by Bible stories. I mean, mm-hmm. of course she would be. They're some of the best stories around. How do we know that? Because they've survived for thousands of years, and the ones that weren't good were forgotten, and the ones that were good were retained, and the ones that are the best tend to be taught to children. Now, of course, I was raised as a choir boy in the church, um, in Sunday school, went to church a couple of times a week in boarding school, so I know the stories, and we talk about the stories. And I talk mm-hmm. to them, I talk to her uh, of them as stories. Mm-hmm. Now, I talk to her about the stories, and I ask her what she thinks about the stories, and she will tell me what she thinks about the stories, and I will ask her if this makes sense or if that makes sense or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like the story of the loaves and the fishes. Can you imagine taking a bite from a loaf of bread and having the loaf of bread regrow the bite? Have you ever seen that? You know, what do you think, right? Does that make sense? Ask those kinds Mm -hmm. of questions. Now... It, so you can ask him the critical questions. You do not have to reveal your thoughts on the issue if he doesn't ask, right? It's like an interrogation, you know, where you've sworn to tell the truth. That doesn't mean you have to volunteer everything, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if my daughter asks me whether I do or don't believe in the big invisible guy, then I owe her the truth. But the truth is not my conclusion. The truth is my thinking. Because truth is never a conclusion. Truth is a process, right? Truth is a journey. It's not a destination. So if I want to tell my daughter the truth about my beliefs about religion, then stating my beliefs about my religion is not stating the truth. The only truth that I can state is the thought processes that I have about religion, which are really just thought processes as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if she asks me if I believe or don't believe, I will say, well, that's an interesting question. And I will ask her, I, you know, before we talk about that, let's talk about what belief is at all. You know, like what if, you, if I say, well, I believe, but we don't have the same meaning of the word believe, then we're not having a, a useful conversation. So then we can go in, what does it mean to believe something and, and what is truth? And, you know, those kinds of questions, I mean, she'll just talk all day about those. She just loves those. I actually have to make notes about the Sunday show because she always wants to know. We spend the whole afternoon talking about the Sunday show. Well, then what did he say? What did you say? All that kind of stuff, right? Because she always wants to know what the show was about. But um, I, I really try, you know, so I'll say, well, this part doesn't make much sense to me, uh, but what do you think? You know, just turn it back to, because the purpose, of course, is is to sharpen your son's thinking skills, right? Mm-hmm. Not to... Uh, show off yours, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no point taking a dog for a walk, dragging him in a cage while you get good exercise. You know, because the whole point is to walk <laughs> the dogs. And yeah. so, with your son, um, if he's saying all these things about religion, you can say, well, that's interesting. So, you know, do you think it's a story or do you think it's true? I think it's true. Well, okay, that's very interesting. What do you think truth is? How do you know whether something's true or something's just a story? And you can have great mm-hmm. conversations about that without ever touching upon the 
spoken or formal content of religious doctrines, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and honestly, though, I, that that all does make a lot of sense. Um, my my son, I think he like I, I have, like I said, I mean, his mom, and obviously, you know, being the fact that his mom is around him the whole time, you know, he 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 gets a lot of her in him. You know what I mean? And okay. one of the things is is the uh, the whole like uh, oh well, I don't. Like, let's not talk about Ike. You know, like, she's one of those, like... So let's not talk about what? Like, let's not talk about it. You know, like, if you, you'll you say something, and it's funny, because my mom is the exact same. Right? It's like, if you if you say something that makes her uncomfortable, um, it's like, well, I, I don't want to talk about it. You know, oh, we'll she's like a wish-away person. I just, I just yeah, wish and, this topic and, away. Right. And he he gets it in him, too. Right. Like, he he mimics that. So anytime I kind of make him or bring anything to the table that, you know, gets him thinking, it's like, Oh, well, what's, what's, I don't want to talk about it. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. And of course you can't make him talk about it. Of course. Right. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't want to see because yeah. Yeah. Would he talk about uh, how he feels in the face of his mother's aggression? Uh, I'm sorry. Do you think he would talk about how he feels in the face of his mother's aggression? Um. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. So like. Well, I think. I mean, I think that's more important than issues of gods and devils and hells and heavens. I think would yeah. be that. Uh, you know, if he would talk about that, talk about that topic. You know, from a very open listening standpoint. Hmm. Now, yeah. my particular – like, please understand, I've not faced this situation directly, so please take everything mm-hmm. I'm saying with a grain of salt as usual. But I think there are things to be open-minded about mm-hmm. and things to help. Uh, but, but I think that um, – like things to help kids think and all that. But when it comes to being mistreated, I don't think there's much room for a neutral stand. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, yeah, I'll be neutral and curious about the existence of deities, but I won't be neutral if my daughter was ever, like, pushed over by some kid or something like that or some adult yelled at her or called her stupid. I would not mm-hmm. be neutral about that. Yeah, and uh, that actually, uh, that's, I've, I, I guess I've taken a very similar uh, stance uh, to that. Um, and when uh, there was, there was one time when he was telling me, like he, he was kind of telling me about how, uh, you know, things that, that, uh, punishments and whatever that you get. And I said, I was like, you know, that's not good. I'm going to talk to your mom about that. Right. And, uh, and, uh, I did. And, and, you know, we, we had a, an hour long debate about you know whatnot and and uh and um and so i don't know i think that might have probably helped her out but it helped him out to see like what's kind of i think it helped him to at least see that you know it's like wait a minute my mom doesn't necessarily do it because i'm bad but more maybe it's because she's bad 
or something. But then I'm yeah, like, yeah, no, it's uh, it always it, strikes me that the people who've made such egregious mistakes as not even knowing who the father of her son is is willing to impose pretty heavy moral standards on children. Uh, you know, the the lack of humility for people who've made mistakes in their lives always strikes me as extremely bizarre. You know, I'm very mm-hmm. hesitant about most things in life, and I haven't even made any really big mistakes. But to people who big mistakes, you know, and, you know, we don't, mm-hmm. I don't condemn them, I mean, whatever, right? But do you think that gives you some humility, you know? Like, hey, I made a really yeah. bad mistake at 25, so I'm going to forgive what you did innocently at five. But, yeah, um, totally. But, but that's a big problem. But, of course, you can always remind your son that you're just a phone call away. If, you're, if your mom scares you, if you're upset, if you're scared, if you're afraid, if you're, uh, if you're really nervous about stuff, if you feel like things are going badly, pick up the phone. No, day or night. Well, that's the other, that's the other thing is, is uh, she's got a cell phone. She doesn't have a home phone. And uh, so, I, I mean, she, I, she won't let me call during the week because, uh, because uh, Aiden's busy all week is, is the excuse, which is obviously told. BS. You mean your son is busy um, all week? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the excuse, right? She just she just doesn't like getting the phone call from me and being like, like she she. Well, just, look, I mean, like, if you literally, have to go back to court, I hate to say it, but if you go back to court, you should be allowed to talk to your damn son. Yeah, well, exactly. I, mean, I don't think she has the right to uh, to deny you contact with your son. If you got to go back to court, go back to court, but and threaten her. But mm-hmm. that's like I got to talk to my son during the week. I mean, it's crazy. I'm the dad. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it, it all kind of came to a head. Um, on Friday when, uh, like actually kind of a coincidence uh, talking to you now, and, but it all came to a head and she gave me a schedule that said, I only get him once a month instead. And, and then she, like, I basically showed up at her door on Friday and, and was like, okay, well, court order says I get him every weekend. And she was like, well, I'm not getting him to you. So I called the cops, cops came down. And since I've got this court order that, you know, has all these terms on it, but since it doesn't explicitly say police assistance, they can't do anything. And, so, um, so, so now I've got to go back to court. court so it's basically how it is. To, so it's an unenforceable court order. Is that right? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. I guess the Excellent. only, the well, only, how will we get justice in a free society? There's just no way to understand <laughs> it because the justice we get from a government society is so fucking great. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I guess all the weight that has, that this court order has is its effect on future court orders. So if I, if I violate the court order, then that looks bad is what, is what the cops basically told me. Like if if she well, violates, she violates she's the court order, that. as she's doing, right? Well, exactly. And I, I I thought about that, and I think she she is. Like, I'll say she's like calculating. She's like intelligent in that way. Um, she knew that it didn't that it didn't say police assistance on it, and therefore she could get away with doing that. Um, yeah, and of course, you know the problem is too. It's not like you want your son to be dragged out from his mom's place by the cops, right? Well, and, and I was really worried that that might happen, but I was like, I, I figured, hey, if it happens once and then she'll, and she'll get the message, you know, and then it'll, it'll kind of be, and then at least he'll see me on the other side and, and like I can, we can try and minimize. You could be very clear with him and say, you know, you could be, you could be, you, I mean, if you ask how did this happen and say, well, because your mom wasn't obeying the, the rules. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I'm not saying, you know, try and poison your son against your mom or anything like that, but we owe people the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's just, I guess it's a kind of coincidence that, uh, that the truth is poison against her. Like, 
Well, no, that's her like choice. I, uh, the truth. I mean, she she's mm-hmm. creating. I mean, she's just doing this the stuff that is reflecting yeah. badly upon her. Um, uh, and um, of course, you're facing an extremely biased court system uh, that is pro mom and. Uh, in many ways, uh, pro mom at the expense of children, and so I'm very sorry about that. But my God, I mean, how lucky is he to have uh, one parent in his life who who really gives, um, <laughs> really gives a shit. I won't say his mom doesn't, but who really cares about his sort of long term intellectual, uh, moral, and emotional growth. I mean, kudos to you, man. It's a hard situation to stay in, and uh, good for you for toughing it out. I mean, boy, that kid uh, is, is lucky to have an influence like you. I mean, the mom's in welfare, and talking about fleeing the country and yelling at him and maybe hitting him and calling him names, perhaps. I mean, that's pretty negative. And if it wasn't for you, it would be um, pretty universal, right? And then he goes to school and yeah. he's told he's a born sinner and going to go to hell. Yeah. So good for you. I mean, you are um, a northern star that this kid can guide himself by, and it may not show up for quite some time, right? Because he's just, he's got to navigate the majority of his environment, right? The majority of his mm-hmm. environment is his mom and his school, right? So yeah. we plant these seeds, and sometimes it can take a decade to grow. Mm-hmm. But sure as hell, if they're not there, they ain't going to grow, right? Mm-hmm. And and I appreciate that, and I, I actually recognize that that like you know I I I'm in a sense, I'm at least the, he's got me, you know, but, but, uh, he's, she takes like more and more, you know, she takes these steps and to like minimize in a sense, my contact with him and, and whatnot. And, and, and she like, will pay for that over time. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but she will pay like moms. And this is true for both parents. We just happen to be talking about the mom here. Uh, moms who, who turn children against fathers, or who keep children from fathers will pay the price. They will pay the price because he's going to find out the truth at some point. Right? He's going to find the truth out at some point. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be it's going to be rough when he does. Mm-hmm. Right? The, 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 better, the better parent... I mean, all other things being equal, generally wins out in the long term. The long term may be quite some time, but he's going to find out the truth. He's yeah. going to find out the truth. I mean, I say this from my own experience. You know, my mom kept telling me, well, my, well your dad, he, he, he just left and went to Africa. And this turned out to be not the case at all. And mm-hmm. she was threatening all kinds of legal action. I mean, he, you know, it was, it was a mess. And she continued to threaten him with all kinds of legal action for years and years. So... This was yeah. not, uh, it was not the case. And it's not good for the moms when, I mean, particularly when the sons find out if the moms have been keeping them from the dads. Um, there is a, um, you know, where there's honesty, there are natural consequences to bad behavior. I mean, the only way that bad behavior ever gets shielded from its own consequences is when you live in a fictional universe, right? And lies and propaganda and all this kind of crap. Um, but where, where the truth is available, there is a hell for the wrongdoers. It just, you know, it's not after death or anything. It's just where the truth is, is available. So there is a certain amount where I feel like, 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 you know, I, I, excuse me, I'm trying to think of the right way to put this, but basically the, that, um, I could, you know, if I had, cause I'm, you know, I've, I've made some pretty bad decisions with regards to employment 
And I just, I, you know, I'm not a guy that's taken the, like I've been fired lots of times and, and, um, it just now I kind of, you know, I, I think I recognized the big things that were holding me back, which was namely the fact that I was wasting my days away playing video games. And, and, um, so I quit doing that and, um, I'm at this new job now where it's, it's like, I'm, there is potential to make more money if I can like really nail down the sales. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of at a, like a rock bottom situation now where I'm like, I'm, I'm renting a room in my mom's house. Like it's not, it's not like she's paying for all my stuff. It's like slightly less expensive than the average, you know, uh, I'll say room rental in, uh, you know, in and around the place. Um, so, but I do feel like, you know, Hey, if I, if I was to make more money and, and then there is also the fact that, you know, my mom's, she's pretty passive aggressive and, and we're at the point where we like, she, she doesn't want to talk about anything I ever want to talk. So I like recently kind of got to the point where I, I don't like listen to anything she says. Like, but, um, that's a pretty, I'll say in a sense, almost volatile situation. But, um, but, uh, the point that I'm trying to make is that um, I I feel like, in a sense, if I was to do more, you know, if I had more money, I could, in a sense, pay like a better lawyer that could kind of like, you know, so I so that's well, what I'm I trying mean, to use. I, I, I sorry to interrupt, but I certainly I certainly think that focusing on improving your human capital, like in becoming better at stuff, is a good thing to do. You know, get, getting some money is not a bad way to take some steps towards freedom and empowerment, you know, whether we like it or not. Uh, you know, this Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I think, is all just a theoretical construct. But um, but money does give you some some choices. And so I think focusing on getting some cash is probably a good, uh, a good thing to do. So I certainly mm-hmm. support you in that. You know, the video game thing is interesting. I mean, I love video games. I love the technology. I love the realism. I think that what the <laughs> graphics cards and CPUs are able to do is truly astounding. But uh, oh, I yeah, certainly yeah. have noticed that video game playing in, is proportional in, in my life. Video game playing is proportional to the degree of horror I'm experiencing from the people around me. So think of like a leper colony, you know, where everybody's got pustules and body bits falling off and so on, you know, could you really blame them for liking pornography uh, with, you know, pretty people having great sex, or at least that's the depiction, you know, if you're in a leper colony, then a fantasy world of sexuality would probably be pretty appealing because there's not much going on around you that's going to be very appealing, you know, have some sex with some woman whose boobs are falling off, you know, that's not going to be particularly enticing. And so I think that if if your world... If the real world is horrible, then the fictional world is more appealing. And and video games are just the latest in this. I mean, fantasy play uh, has been around forever. Uh, when I was a kid, the video games weren't really around. So I was into science fiction and, and, and so on. When I got older, I was into fantasy novels. And that's simply because my own world was unbearable. And therefore, a fictional world was like a gravity well to me. Now, the problem, of course, is that when your real world is unbearable and you escape into fictional worlds, what you're doing is dragging yourself from changing your circumstances. Mm-hmm. Right, it's the old um, heroin for a toothache. Hey, I feel better. Wait a minute. <laughs> My tooth is just getting worse, right? Yeah. So that which alleviates symptoms without alleviating the cause tends to contribute to worse symptoms down the road. 
And mm-hmm. I think the degree of unhappiness that people have in their environment is pretty measurable by addictions of various kinds. Particularly, I mean, addictions to video games. Again, I'm not saying video games are bad. I mean, I still try and no, get me neither. two hours a, a, a month in if I can. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I played all the way through uh, Morrowind. Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I, uh, I used to play the Ultimate series when I was a teenager. But this is because mm-hmm. my environment was so horrible. I mean, I don't just mean home environment, school environment, and my friends were dysfunctional, and, and I mean, it was just, it was a mess all around. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's like, it's like the guy who wants to go back in the Matrix after he betrays Neo. Yeah. You know, that, that bold guy. Cypher. <laughs> he, yeah, c- Cypher. Yeah, he's like, you know, I, I want to go back in and I don't remember because, you know, in this case, it was because he'd done bad things. But yeah. when your environment, you know, my environment growing up was so... Uh, it was so barren. I mean, I think fundamentally it was barren. I mean, it was barren with lightning and sandstorms and earthquakes and so on. But the barrenness is what I remember the most. And by that, I mean, there were no examples of nobility, of courage, of virtue anywhere in my entire welfare-blasted landscape. You know, we lived in in the kind of apartments that, you know, people in their 30s and 40s should have outgrown. uh, But because they were almost all populated by single moms, uh, you know, 70s was 300% increase in divorce and so on. And it was all defensive, brittle, ridiculous, aggressive, violent, disturbed people. You know, we had neighbors who moved in next door and they were going to invite us over uh, for for coffee or tea or whatever it was to get to know each other. And it turns out that they didn't because uh, he, he, you know, he had a, this was, guy was a cop and he had a knockdown drag out fight with his wife and ended up discharging a weapon, like shooting a, a bullet into the wall. And so we didn't actually go around and socialize with these lunatics. But we knew, I knew at least that they were living next door. And I also got a pretty good example of what, you know, someone who can be a cop, you know, <laughs> there's not other cops around there saying, well, this guy's a lunatic, he's shooting holes in a crowded apartment building, so maybe he shouldn't be a cop. No, they were all fine with that. So this gave me a pretty good example of what, uh, of what it was like, of what was acceptable behavior on the part of a cop in society as a whole. He didn't get, you know, <laughs> what are we going to do? Call the cops? There's one already there. So mm-hmm. it was the, the lack of you know, why, why do you escape? Video games, of course, give you the chance to be heroic, to, to be brave, to, to achieve things, to, to work with squad mates these days who are, you know, pretty functional, don't betray and shoot you in the back, usually. And that's appealing when you live in a world that is barren of virtue, is barren of nobility, is barren from courage. It's, it's an empty, blasted landscape of smashed up, uh, self-hating and defensive and aggressive human wreckage and uh, i think that's i just wanted to sort of point that out to be away from courage to be away from heroism is to die a slow lingering thirsty death death in the desert and i just think that Mm. it's really really important to try and populate your environment first of all with you with the kind of courage that is necessary to change the world and to improve the world and video games of course are a false kind of achievement you know like i i used to yeah totally yeah, I used to play Unreal Tournament, and um, I got, uh, 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 and so I, I picked it up again just because I wanted something that I could dip into and play for like ten minutes, and all that. And mm. you know, there's people they're literally like bragging about their skills in the game. Like I'm really great at this game, newbie. You know, I pwn, yeah. pwnage and stuff like that. And oh, yeah. of course, it is a massive confession of I have spent ten thousand hours playing this game to the exclusion yeah. of other things that I might have done in my life. Like people think that it's a badge of honor. 
to post, look, I completed this game. And it's like, I got no problem, complete the game or whatever. But you've done that at the expense of doing courageous, good things in the world. You've done that at the expense mm-hmm. of charity and nobility and helping other people in a positive and productive way. And again, I'm not saying yeah, you've got to be noble 24-7, but uh, you know, the, the idea that you brag about twitchy skills developed in isolation, probably because your world is unbearable, is, um, is kind of... Uh, a mess you know it's like it's like yeah. i went to live in a cave and look i can see really well in the dark look how well i can see in the dark it's like <laughs> yeah you're living in a cave for god's sakes you know yeah. <laughs> because wherever you were was unbearable and you took to the caves i mean that's that's mm-hmm. i have sympathy for that that's terrible but it's not something to brag about anyway i just wanted to to mention that listen i'm sorry you know i, I usual my usual time management skills remain in force and i i think i'm gonna have to move mm-hmm. on to to callers uh, but i, I okay. want to spend some time on this because this is a hugely challenging issue you know i wish there was an easy solution um i think of course can i just can i just ask yeah, one please. question um uh, my my dad i i think there's a chance that he he would uh contribute contribute monetarily towards some therapy and but i just like i said i haven't talked to him in in you know six months and i don't know if uh if that would uh i'm thinking i just that it probably would be a good idea Mm. but uh yeah i mean uh, if if people who've done you wrong wish to make restitution i mm -hmm. you know my personal opinion is unless they're just completely abhorrent to you then I think that it's worth giving them the opportunity, right? Like I was just thinking about this the other day. I can't remember why. Some guy trawled FDR pretty hard a couple of years ago, and he came on my show, and we talked about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he apologized, and, and I was curious about what motivates trolls, and I, I had this guy on the show, and we talked about it. And so people who've done you harm or who've done you wrong, if they wish to make restitution or are willing to make restitution, I mean, unless they're just completely abhorrent to you, then I think it's worth being open to that. That doesn't mean that he's then buying your loyalty back. Because, you know, one of the most powerful phrases in the English language when it comes to avoiding manipulation or control is to say, let me see how I feel about that. Right? I'm going to, you know, let let me see how I feel about that. Right? So if someone says, well, look, I paid for your therapy. I mean, you know, you got to come see me. Well, let me see how I feel about that. And then take time, sit down in a dark place, uh, and and see how you feel about it. But um, okay. people will try to make you will stuff who want to manipulate you. Uh, you, you. You owe me this, or you should do this, or this is the right thing to do, or, well, I gave you this, now you should give me that. It's like, let me see how I feel about that. Let me check in mm-hmm. with my gut. Let me check in with my instincts. Let me check in with my feelings. Because they do a huge amount of encapsulation, right? When it comes to relationships, the intellect will almost always lead you astray. Because that's like trying to paint a landscape by waving uh, a laser around in pitch blackness. Mm. You just you can't do it. You know, even moonlight okay. is better for painting a landscape. And you know, the second brain around the gut, uh, I think, is you know, the unconscious has six thousand times the processing power of the conscious mind. And dealing yeah. with relationships requires more um, processing power than the conscious mind can provide. The conscious mind's great for other stuff, but mm. I have found it to be very empowering and and useful and and positive and powerful and true to say. Uh, you know, so if you, you can take the money, go see therapy. And if your dad then says, well, I gave you money, therefore you have to do this. Let me see how I feel about that. I'll mull it over. I'll, I'll check in with myself and I'll see how I feel. And once people get that they can't give you orders, because if you're checking in with yourself, you're not taking orders. You're listening to yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's a very powerful thing to do. And then people get, like once you say, let me, let me see how I feel about that, people get that they actually have to make you feel good in order for you to want to spend time with them. You know, and it's weird that we should even say, have to say that about relationships. 
You know, like yeah. if if I were to it's say like putting the yeah, fence up, yeah. Sorry, no, no, I'm I'm listening. Sorry. Well, no, it's, it's go, like go if I it. if I said, you know, I uh, I would like to start a restaurant, and the radical idea is that the customers are going to enjoy eating there. You know that that's my radical business plan that, that the food is going to be tasty and that they're going to want to come back. <laughs> you know and that's mm-hmm. weird, right? As opposed to I just bark orders and say, "Hey, I invested half a million dollars in this restaurant. You better goddamn well come back." Yeah, well, yeah. That is not a good business plan, right? Because no. that's you know that the family is still so resistant to voluntarism, right? But mm-hmm. if you say, "Let me see how I feel about that," then people will get that they can't just give you orders, they can't manipulate you. I'm not saying your dad would do this. I'm just saying, right, like. This would be my defense. I wouldn't necessarily put it past them. Yeah, like so, but say, oh, uh, oh, yes, I, I, you know, if you feel that, you know, obviously, if therapy is is a good thing, if you get the right therapist, it can be a great thing. And uh, yes, you know, I appreciate that. If you, you know, I assume you do, and you know, I'll start yeah. taking the therapy. And then if he starts to push boundaries and say, well, hello, yeah, let me just see how I feel about that. Okay, and, and, and do you have a website for like um like web like so I can get a good therapist so I'm not like getting some person who's like telling me to get in touch with God and all that kind of stuff? I don't know. I, Is there I, anything I don't, like that? No, I haven't. Uh, I have thought off and on about you know whether um it might, but I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You can post on the message board okay. and see if anyone has found any good therapists that they've experienced around where you are. And of course, you can post on Facebook and say. Has anyone found you can make an anonymous account or whatever? Just post on Facebook and say, Has anyone found a good therapist um, mm-hmm. uh, around your particular location? And I think that would be a useful thing to get. But yeah, I mean, there are, there are some good therapists out there. I, I assume there are, like everything, a lot, of, a lot of bad therapists who will say, But he's your father. You have to stay in touch with him. It's like, actually, that's not factually true. Yeah. Uh, adult relationships are voluntary. You know, the shock is that that's the mm-hmm. truth. Uh, or they'll say, yeah. You know, well, you've turned away from God and that's why you're unhappy. I mean, this, this is not something you want to pay for. But, uh, you, yeah. you know, the best thing to do, of course, is to, before you go see the therapist, and it's weird because we're interview just so used them. to, yeah, just interview them, right? I've got how to find okay. a good therapist as a podcast, but, you know, just ask, ask them about their values and, and what their therapeutic approach is and, you know, whether they bring, mm. bring religion in or what do they think about uh, not talking to parents if parents have been abusive or, you know, this kind of stuff. Just get a sense mm-hmm. of where they're coming from. Okay, cool. Awesome. Right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. You are the that. consumer, right? You, you are the consumer. You are the per- They're not an authority figure, right? They, they mm-hmm. are a service provider, a therapist. And so mm-hmm. uh, interview like crazy, that would be my suggestion. Okay. Awesome. Thank you very much, Stefan. You're um, welcome. And uh, again, kudos to you. Uh, massive congrats for staying in this very challenging situation. I mean, lesser men would run screaming, and I'm sure that's been <laughs> the impulse from time to time. But good for oh, you. Absolutely. Girl who needs you. Okay. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And uh, keep me posted if you can. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'm going to try and call back in again at some point. Here. All right. Thanks, man. Okay. Have a good one. You too. Heroic. Wow. What an, an amazing what an amazing guy. I mean, how, how to find the inner resources to stand for your child when you've come from this kind of challenging background. It's just amazing. Best listeners in the world, in my... Eh, I don't even think it's an opinion anymore. James, who have we got next? Next up, we have Juan. Hello, hello. Hi, um, my name is Juan, and um, can you hear me well? Yes, actually, oh. after the uh, crackly yogurt cup on a string phone call, this is actually very pleasant, so go ahead. Okay, um, well, first of all, I just wanted to um, say I'm pretty happy that you're doing well <clears throat> with regards to your, uh, your cancer, and I really hope 
that you keep uh, keep it up. Okay, so uh, as as a short story, <clears throat> I wanted to just let you know that um, since a couple of uh, years ago, I've been dealing with with different uh, questions with regards to both education and and econ- economy. And the reason why is I've been in education for for basically all my life. It's it's our family business, and I am in charge of uh, running some schools um, over here in Guatemala. And um, when I heard uh, about your your some of your interviews with Dr. Gray, um, this hmm. brought up many questions, and and it's really interesting the format that he. Uh, proposes uh, for education through play and for for us in the administration as, as I heard that you both uh, said that that might be the, the main obstacle for uh, for education uh, using play uh, to go move forward um, having the the administration say no uh, and some teachers wanting to to incorporate to this new methodology and, and in the administration saying no. Um, you see, I, 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 it made me think, um, because I'm a young guy, I, I am the second generation in our, in our family business and, and I have new ideas and, uh, everything is well set up now and everything's been working for many years and changing that, um, structure, as you might imagine, is, is, it's quite hard, uh, being that most of the parents and students are accustomed to our methodology and it's just a typical methodology over here in Guatemala for a private school where we teach. You mean like, uh, you know, the teacher puts stuff on the blackboard, you memorize it and you learn how to do it and then you spit it back and that kind of stuff? No, not quite. Not quite. Not, yeah. not quite that much, but uh, meaning uh, that you have a schedule, that you have a curriculum and that you have to follow um, um, some steps in, in, in towards you actually passing a grade. Uh, you you get tested and you see all of that uh, the memorization and all of that we 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 are running away from from all of that uh, there's still some memorization of course like uh, multiplication tables and stuff like that but a, a significant change in education uh, as as Ms., as Dr. Gray uh, proposes would be great and and uh, but you see my 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 issue here is. Okay, as an administrator and uh, and having having a business where we run different schools in um, in the typical way, coming up with a new idea in a society that is uh, very the culture here in Latin America is is it hasn't changed that much, uh, and we are not as open as. Uh, maybe Canada and the U.S. Uh, so changing something like this, parents would run away, I think, from the idea of, oh, um, my kid is not going to be good enough at the end and he's not going to get into a good college and uh, he might not get the best job. And um, <clears throat> and I think that in, uh, in some extent in the U.S., uh, people that are basically... Uh, working towards the curriculum of their children from the get-go, from age two, by having them in the best schools and piano lessons and everything, uh, they are they're thinking in the same way. So, sure. My 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 dilemma is: I want to start a new 
model over here uh, and in the region, I would love to do that. Um, I think that technology would be a great um, or a great medium to to use in order to help me somehow with a hybrid, uh, somehow uh, teaching experience, uh, learning experience um, by using technology. And uh, my, my dilemma is how do we actually sell the idea to the parents and to the right. students that this is a good um, uh, route to take and uh, that you will not be uh, uh, in a bad position at the end where you will not have the ability to compete. Because, you see, you have a, a daughter, I believe, who's about four, right? Yes. And I have a, I have a son who's four and, and, a, and another son who's two. And at, I, I think that when they graduate, they will not be competing locally as I used to or as my parents used to. They will be competing globally. And people in, in, in Asia are not taking any, any of this uh, lightly. I mean, they are they're going to school on Saturdays and they're, they're putting many more hours on it. And they are incredibly um, focused uh, in comparison with us over here, and and results from education, um, right. uh, quality I mean, that, uh, around sorry, the world. I, yeah? I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much about competition from overseas in the long run, because I mean I, I remember growing up with oh Japan was going to kick America's butt and you know they were just going to sell everything and we were going to sell nothing or Canada was going to sell nothing because they worked so hard and they did calisthenics uh, on the job and and all that kind of stuff and of course all that happened was they had some productivity gains as a result of some rational. Um, good free market worker-driven initiatives. So what happened was the government said, oh, great, you know, good. Uh, GDP is up, so we can use that as collateral to borrow. And now Japan is over 200% GDP to debt ratio for the government, and they've been in a recession uh, slash depression for about 20 years with no sign of it ending. So uh, if, if, you know, if you say, oh, my goodness, it's a really great competitor over there, um, you just know that the government's going to tie an anvil to the back of that competitor and grind them into the dust. Like, oh my God, that guy runs the fastest. Well, he gets the biggest anvil and his legs are going to break. So I just, I don't want to say that don't prepare your kids for competition. It will come from, from somewhere. But competition, like really efficient competition flares up. You know, it's like uh, it's like a solar flare. It flares up, and the government sits on it and puts it out. And so, you know, by just using it as as collateral to borrow more. So, uh, I just wanted to sort of to to point that out. But uh, uh, okay, do, do you but, want some? Uh, and let would, me give I, you a response. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I would I would um, differ a little bit from you there because um, I see I see competition in the future. Uh, very virtual in in a virtual environment. I mean, look at us. I'm calling you from from Guatemala uh, uh, to a show that's virtually uh, vi uh, virtual I mean it's virtual yeah. uh, you have 50 million downloads on podcast everything's moving towards uh, uh, this this realm and um, I believe that most of the the qualities that people employing uh, new students or new uh, uh, young people coming out of college or, or, or school, will be looking for that ability and uh, you see if, if it's web design or if it's anything that you can design by just sitting behind a computer and anywhere in the world and uh, having a chance to uh, be a part of a, a team of design, for example, 
you can be sitting down in, in China and, and, and doing it from there and, and have sure. no, no problem. You see, so I think, yeah, the comparison with Japan is, is, is fair, uh, even though uh, those guys and Toyota is the, is the largest um, uh, car company in the world, I believe, right now. It, it, regardless of the errors that the state uh, of Japan uh, made with regards to their economy and their, uh, and their monetary uh, uh, policies, but you see, um, the idea is how then can we um, sell the idea to, to parents where if, if, if we want to take it easier on children because stress, I believe, is not a good, uh, a good thing for them, for children, how do we sell the idea that they are Regardless of the of what Asia is doing, regardless of what uh, the other kid, uh, the neighbor kid in which is in normal education here in Guatemala is doing, uh, or typical right. education, you will have a child that is both capable of doing whatever he knows, what he likes to do, and actually being able to choose what he likes to do from the get go. Because right. it, the emotional intelligence is what I'm trying to reach. Uh, through our education and, and and improve, and I was right. just listening to your last um, uh, person in the show, and uh, uh, and and the question popped up in my head: where how can I improve um, the self-esteem and the uh, emotional intelligence in our students through some some methodology program or or, or whatever, in right. order for them to not make mistakes. Or, or to reduce the mistakes that are uh, lifelong mistakes. Uh, right. With regards well, let to me let me give you a, a brief pitch yeah. that I would. I was sort of mulling over the question while you were talking, while still expertly listening. But let me give you a brief pitch that I would make to to parents, which is to say that if the world doesn't change that much, then you can prepare your children for the life that you're leading. Right. So in it, like in a stagnant society, so like China didn't change much for like thousands of years. And so the parents could say, OK, well, I'm going to prepare my children for success in the Chinese culture by reproducing what worked for me, because nothing has changed that much. Right. Like, I mean, if you're still farming the same piece of land you have for a thousand years, then your skills as a farmer, you can reproduce in your children and it's going to work. Right. And so in a time when culture doesn't change that much, economy doesn't change that much, society doesn't change that much, then you can pretty much do the same thing that you did and your children will have a fairly decent chance, a good chance of success because, because of course, a parent's job to some degree is to groom the child for success in the world. Now, if the world is just the people around you in the same small town that you grew up in and nothing's changed for a long time, then just do what you did and they'll fit into that world. But in a world that's changing, you have a great challenge because reproducing what happened in your own childhood is not likely going to work. Yeah, I agree. Because the, the world is changing. And so uh, what I would suggest to, to parents is like, okay, so let's say your child is four or five. You have the great challenge and the great possibility of trying to figure out what is going to work best for your child in about 20 years, right? When they finish college or whatever it is they're going to do, they're sort of in their early to mid-20s and they're going out in the world to make a success of themselves. And there are a few things that which, which we can guarantee with, with virtual certainty. The first thing is that if they are culturally bound, 
In other words, if they believe that their culture is the truth and they believe or have never really had much exposure to other cultural beliefs, then they will be at a severe disadvantage. Because one thing we can be sure of is that interaction with other cultures is going to increase as the economy is becoming more global. And so you cannot teach your children the mere supremacy of your own culture and deny them access to the truths and values of other cultures, right? Right. So I would say that, um, and now how do you teach people to navigate the world in the absence of cultural imperatives? Well, you have to teach them reason, right? You have to teach them how to think. Because the people who meet across different cultures meet on the common ground of reason and evidence. That's why scientists can talk from a wide variety of cultures and religious leaders really can't, right? (laughs) Because science has reason and evidence and that's how they overlap and overcome cultural biases and so on. So I would say teach them reason, teach them how to think, teach them the the value of evidence, teach them scientific thinking and so on. That is going to give them the greatest chance to interact with other cultures, which is going to give them the greatest chance for success if, as we have no reason to disbelieve, current trends about globalization are going to continue. So that would be the first thing. And coincidentally, that helps spread philosophy too, because in the absence of culture, you need philosophy, you know, because religion is subsumed under culture. So, so I would argue, you know, we, we're going to teach your kids how to think, because I mean, nobody knows exactly how the world's going to look in 20 years. Nobody knows how it's going to look tomorrow. Otherwise, we'd all be billionaires, right? <laughs> right? But, but what we do know is that your children are much more likely to interact with people from other cultures. Let's say that they have to interact with people from Japan. Well, Japan is 80% atheist. So are they going to need to know how to, I mean, if you only raise them in religion and they have to then interact with the Japanese or the Chinese or the Norwegian who are majority atheist, how are they going to do that? Well, because you've taught them how to think. I mean, you've taught them about your own culture, of course, but not as an absolute. But they're going to need to know how to reason with other people. And that means that they're going to know how, have to know how to think and use evidence-based research. So that would be the first thing. And the second thing that I would say is that... Um, plus social skills, I think, are the two major components of success uh, in in this world. Now, how are you going to teach your kids social skills? Well, if the only people they're going to socialize with are the people in the small town they grew up in, then you almost don't need to teach them social skills because they're just going to absorb them from being around people like themselves. But learning how to negotiate with people who come from a very different background is really important in terms of future success. You know, so we're going to work with uh, teaching them uh, teaching them social skills outside of just the culture that they grew up in because that's going to give them the greatest chance for success in in 20 years and and so on. So if parents are looking, and this is habitual for parents, nothing wrong with it, it's just natural, is the easiest thing to do when you're a parent is to reproduce the world that you grew up in, right? Because you already know it, you've already gone through that experience, you were taught by it as a kid. But I would sort of argue if the parents are really, as you say, these are the parents who are the most committed to their children's future success, then saying to reproduce that which came before is not going to give your children the greatest chance for success in a multicultural, reason-based and evidence-based future economy. So, I mean, that would be sort of my example about how best to, to, to make a sales pitch for offering something different than what the parents are used to. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Um, you see, the, you have about uh, how many how many people that have subscribed to your podcast? Like, could you tell me that number? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, More honestly, less, it's, I mean, it's really uh, it's really because you know a whole bunch of people are getting stuff from torrents or mirror sites right. or whatever. But I mean, on YouTube there goes, are seventy thousand subscribers, uh, okay. but I don't so know my, how many my people. My question is, okay, I, I make this question because um, what are I see myself as uh, as you were mentioning with the other guy before me, um, uh, the Matrix. You see, 
how many of us in the world have actually decided to go for the truth and uh, to take the what was it the, the red pill um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and to actually seek truth and how many I, I, even though I think I, I am right I am I'm sure that people are not even bothering with asking themselves many questions with regards to why I do this or why I do that. You know, uh, people just do it because it's cultural and because they, uh, their parents did it and because that's that's how they know. Uh, that's that, that's where status quo in their life is seems, seems okay. They don't need to uh, yeah. uh, move the, the water and, uh, and make it uh, choppy, you know. Uh, well, they, they sorry, like but the they, they don't do that with technology, right? I mean, they didn't um, say, well, there were no computers when I was a kid, so I'm not going to get one. Right? So I people agree. are very yeah, happy yeah. to embrace change when they see the advantage, right? It's just that most people don't really see the advantage of changing how they parent. Anyway, but just want to mention that. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. Now, uh, with regards to um, how, you see, I, I would come and, and pitch the idea to uh, parents over here, and uh, especially to those parents who we know that uh, some of their children do not adapt well to the typical education in a school with a... With a uh, schedule and all sorts of stuff and we know that those kids are are apt for other types of education uh, we would uh, pitch the idea to them now that doesn't change the fact that they are the adults and they are the ones that are going to choose for the kid and that they might not agree with us and that, I see that as a hurdle I don't see that as an impossible uh, way of, uh, of pitching uh, and, and making this project work uh, but um, that was the dilemma that I, I wanted to point out to you, that uh, it was uh, the ideas that Mr. Dr. Gray uh, proposes are, are, are great, even though I think they are a little bit too um, too open and too relaxed for my uh, for my this is the childism that I've, I still get lots of emails where people write to me and say, how are you going to educate your daughter? Which is sort of like, people would never write to me and say, um, what hobbies are you going to choose for your wife? Right? I mean, because it's like, well, I, I don't get to impose hobbies on my wife. I mean, she, she can choose for herself. She's, she's a very intelligent, independent, lovely woman. And I mean, but but people will c quite comfortably write to me and say, how are you going to choose, like, how are you going to educate Isabella? How is Isabella going to be educated? To which my answer is, well, how am I supposed to know that? I mean, what is Isabella going to like? I mean, we'll expose her to a wide variety of educational methods, but it's her choice about how she gets educated. I, I can't impose my educational values on her any more than I can impose, you know, uh, uh, how are you going to choose what your wife wears? You know, how are you going to choose your wife's friends? It's like, well, that's not, that's not my choice. That's okay. Yeah, uh, Doctor Doctor Gray proposes the idea that you know uh, kids in a in a hunter gatherer um, uh, society or, or group um, they learn how to deal with machetes and, and fire and, and stuff like that and sometimes they get hurt uh, but not they don't they often don't die from those things you know uh, we, I mean most of us are are predisposed possibly to completely. Um, Negating the idea of of uh, letting our children um, handle uh, a machete because they might get cut My daughter's been handling scissors for years and she's never hurt herself and when I was a kid you you know hand knives and all that kind of stuff you, you don't I mean of course we do 
hover over them a little bit much. And some of that's natural. We have fewer, fewer children, so we have more invested in each children, child now for the most part. So we have this perception of children's incompetence, like adults are competent and children are incompetent. And I find that this is not true at all, you know, after years of being a stay-at-home dad. Um, my daughter is incredibly competent with regards to reality. Why? Because she lives reality every day and her brain is constantly searching out the principles of reality. I mean, she is a budding scientist in every way imaginable. And when I pose to her some of the questions I get on the Sunday show, she gives really great answers. Really great responses. I mean, she, she should just do the show. She really, she just do the show. I mean, you'd have some kitty stories thrown in, uh, but she should just do the show. She just gives about as good answers as I do, sometimes even better. But so children are incredibly competent when it comes to reality. Now, children are not competent when it comes to adult illusions. Right, so children are not competent relative to culture because culture is an illusion. Children are not competent relative to adult prejudices. Children are not competent relative to religion because re these things are not neither rational nor empirical. In fact, they're generally opposed to both principles. And so people have this perception that children are incompetent and adults are incompetent, but that's because children are not very competent with lies. Now, adults are very competent with lies because they've had them inflicted on them their whole life. They're very facile with lies, uh, culture, religion, and, and superstition, and patriotism, and you know, all the lies that, that so infest and bewilder our minds. And so the degree to which adults think children are incompetent is directly proportional, exactly proportional, I would argue, to the degree to which adults believe things that are not true, that are not rational, that are not empirical. Because children are incompetent relative to lies and the more lies adults believe the more incompetent and frustrating children appear to be and the degree of childism is directly related to the degree of adult delusions because children don't do delusions very well they have to have delusions forcibly violently aggressively manipulatively inflicted upon them and they resist them and this is why in religions children are generally considered to be wrong at birth in a lot of religions because they don't believe the religious nonsense. There's no evidence for it. It's all anti-rational, anti-empirical. And children are both rational and empirical. So if you look at the degree of prejudice against children, you're directly measuring not the degree to which children are incompetent, but the degree to which adults are addicted to lies that children don't believe. That's how we know how many delusions the adults have is their view of children. And the lower their view of children, the more incompetent they believe children to be, the more lies are infesting the adults' minds that children are inconveniently resisting. So I just wanted to sort of point that out. Okay. And, and, and let me tell you, I completely agree with you. And uh, with regards to um, it's the problem lies on, on the parents, not on the children. Oh, yeah. No, and I got You got to exactly, sell change to parents, right? Right. And that is, that is something that I wanted to add with regards to Dr. Gray's uh, comments that Maybe you know. Maybe uh, maybe the the problem does not lie only in the administration of of the schools. Maybe the administration of the schools. Maybe the teachers of the schools would like to see changes with regards to you know a revolution in education where uh, increase effectiveness in the educational process uh, could be uh, something in uh, that we could see in the future. Right. The problem is probably lying in the parents because uh, the parents will never uh, let you, or it's going to be extremely hard, especially in cultures such as mine, 
to actually uh, propose the idea and for, for them to actually accept it and to have faith, if you might, on the results that you are proud of you. And, uh, and uh, that is pretty much exactly the same time that they spent with the, with the parents because the rest, they're sleeping. And I think that the, the problem does not lie on meaning uh, changing the, the, the structure of education and improving the structure of education does not rely solely or particularly uh, heavily on administration or the school or, or anything. If we're talking about private education, that is, yeah. it lies actually in the culture and in the parents that are so accustomed and so in, involved in, in the typical... Uh, sorry, it looks like we lost him. Okay, yeah. So let me let me let me finish up because I think I, I was getting where he's coming from. So basically, the question is, who are the primary agents of social change? And I mean, that's a that's a big it's a big topic and a big question. Uh, I'm going to answer it very briefly here. Maybe do another podcast on it. But I mean, primary, let me let me finish up here. So the primary agents of social change are the people who come up with better arguments, more consistent and rational arguments, the people who say things that are basically true. You know, countries don't exist. Uh, adult relationships are voluntary. Uh, hitting children is a violation of the non-aggression principle. They're basic truths, which, you know, are really hard to argue against if you're not propagandized. So the arguments have to be out there for social change to even be possible. You know, somebody has to invent the car for the majority of people to drive it. I mean, the majority of people are going to invent their own car. So someone has to go ahead and do that. And so the... Um, the philosophers and the people who are, you know, really going to work on communication skills and make good arguments, uh, they're the primary agents of social change. Uh, from there, it goes directly to parents. Parents are the secondary agents of social change. So the degree to which parents are going to listen to reason and raise their children accordingly is the degree to which society is going to change. Um, speaking to institutions, uh, particularly public school institutions, is, is completely useless, which is why I don't have public school teachers on, uh, on, on this show in particular, unless they just want to call up and talk about their experiences. But I don't you know, because I mean, they're 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 the result of of coercion, uh, and and so they have no no incentive to change any more than you would try and yell at some local Soviet bread store to get better bread and more regularly. I mean, they're just part of a system that is coercive. So you can't. I, I won't pretend to reason with people on the other side of a gun. I mean, I just I just won't do it. I'm not going to disrespect reason by ignoring the gun in the room. I generally will not reason with people who are on the other side of a gun. So that's why it's no point reasoning with public school and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so uh, parents, yeah, now, now convincing parents uh, to change. Well, uh, the way that we convince parents to change is we introduce voluntarism into the parent-child relationship. I mean, if you can never get fired, you're much less likely to improve. We all know that from the public sector. And if parents can never get fired, in other words, if, they can never, if, if adult children can never dissociate from parents who are unrepentant abusers, then parents can never get fired. And if parents can never get fired, then they're not going to improve. And the introduction of voluntarism into the adult adult-child-parent relationship is the essence of improving parenting. There's no point going to every individual parent and trying to get them to do a better job just with reason and evidence. I mean, that's like, like going to the post office and trying to get people to do better based on reason and evidence. Well, the problem is there's a system of involuntarism in the entire relationship between postal workers and the general public because postal workers have a legal forced monopoly, can't ever get fired and get paid no matter what. So you can't change it. I mean, you just, you can't. And so the introduction of voluntarism into the adult-child-parent relationship is the way that we get parents to improve. Okay, you can't get fired now, but you might get fired later. So do a better job. Anyway, that's my particular approach. Uh, it's, exactly, it's exactly the same as the economic approach that is taken with involuntary relationships under 
free market economics. It is entirely consistent with that approach that we make relationships voluntary and that is how they become imp- that that's how they improve. Nobody imagines that you can get a better um, that you can get better service from a government monopoly without introducing voluntarism, without making the people uh, who pay for who pay for it uh, pay for it voluntarily and without allowing for competition. Uh, so it's exactly the same principles that people talk about in the free market simply applied to the family. And the fact that some people get go nuts when it's applied to the family means that they simply don't understand economics and they don't understand what, what change means. Uh, and uh, they're, they're clinging to their unjust privileges as parents in the same way that you know a lot of public school teachers would hate the privatization because they wouldn't get summers off anymore, right? I mean, it's just that same entitlement. Uh, but no, it's the, how do you change things uh, in the government? You privatize it. How do you change things in the family? You make them voluntary. I mean, that's that's the only way you can get quality. And um, so anyway, I just wanted to sort of point that out. That's that's what I promote. So, you know, whether you want to do that as a school or not, that's up to you. But that's where change occurs in society. All right. So I'm sorry because we had some pretty uncertain interaction with the last caller. But if we could move on to the next caller, uh, I think that'd be great. All right. Next up is Beata. Great name. How you doing, my friend? Hello, can you hear me? I sure can. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. I'm from Germany, actually. Well, and hello. I wanted, uh, I wanted to say something about Buddhism. Go ahead. Um, because I heard your podcast, I think it was from uh, 2011. And uh, I feel a bit uneasy because I think you don't have such a good opinion about Buddhists. You said that... Uh, they preach empathy and understanding, but they didn't really show it to you. And uh, you feel that Buddhism is self-contradictory and shallow. So uh, I really kind of I feel a bit sad because um, I think you are such an earnest seeker of truth. And I really like what you said, uh, uh, what you told your daughter about um, belief and being the truth. Uh, and myself, I also think that uh, getting the closest to truth as possible uh, is uh, only leading to happiness. Well, let me just correct, because I think the last podcast I did on Buddhism was like in 2007 or 2008. So maybe you listened to it in 2011, but it's way old. I'm perfectly happy to be schooled uh, and to correct any errors that I may have uh, with regards to Buddhism. So uh, if you want to step me through the the um, the belief system, uh, I'm, I'm certainly happy to, to hear. Here, I'm no expert. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff I read about it, a book or two and some articles. So I'm perfectly happy to, to, be, uh, to have my understanding improved where it is deficient. Okay, that's nice of you to say that, right? And the first point I want to make is that um, in order to evaluate a teaching, you should really uh, go to the proper sources and not just uh, to um, rely upon answers from every Tom, Dick and Harry. <laughs> All so right. uh, the best source would be the original texts. And because they are uh, quite difficult to understand for lay people, uh, some commentaries along with it. And, so a few uh, topics and Harry's. Okay. <laughs> the other possibility would be uh, people who have already reached a, a considerable degree of uh, mental development and wisdom, like the Dalai Lama or the Ajahn Brahm from Australia or Bhikkhu Bodhi, he's an American um, Buddhist monk. Now the, or, sorry, the Dalai Lama would be the, the person that the priests, the child that the priest chose as the next incarnation of the Buddha, is that right, when he's like a, a couple of years old? Uh, 
no, that is actually, um, I'm a Theravada Buddhist and they don't believe that thing. But um, there is some but, core but, teaching. But sorry, that, but that, is the, that is the methodology for choosing the Dalai Lama is that mm. the, the priests uh, go around, look at a whole bunch of kids and say, hey, the, the Buddha's in that guy and let's make him the Dalai Lama, right? Yeah, that could be, but I'm not familiar with their uh, that uh, tradition, that Buddhist tradition. Well, but you just told me to go talk to the Dalai Lama, right? Yeah, because or to go what he to says, what he says, the teachings he uh, gives the Dalai Lama, they may, they they are Buddhist teachings. So you can ask him those questions which you put to the John on your podcast. <laughs> Better to put it to the Dalai Lama than to put it to to John. Okay, or, well, how about I put them to you? So, so in the Buddhist um, teachings, how is truth differentiated from falsehood? Okay, um, I, for that I want to say that I myself am also not as advanced as those people I mentioned. I just want to give some impulses for you to uh, get well, some no, more. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. See, okay, <laughs> sorry, the, uh, I, I apologize for interrupting, but but I really I really strive to understand, and I really, yeah, really do want to understand, wait, so I'm going to have to be annoying and interrupt. But okay. it should not be super advanced. It sh in a teaching, it should not be super advanced to know the difference between truth and falsehood. Like, that should be the beginning, right? Right, it shouldn't be, well, you, you're a Buddhist for 10 years and then you find out the difference between truth and falsehood. Because then it'd be like, well, how the hell did I know what was truth and false for the last 10 years, right? How do I know what was valid or not? So it should be the beginning of a teaching to know the difference between truth and falsehood. Would you not agree? Yes, I agree. And uh, every Buddhist is uh, searching for the truth as well as you, just like you. Okay, and, and how do they know the difference? What is the methodology for, like if I go to a scientist and say, what's the difference between truth and falsehood, okay. then we've got answers. I certainly put forward answers very early on in the podcast series here, mm -hmm. uh, reason and evidence, blah, blah, blah. So there are, or, you know, medicine, how do we know an efficacious medicine or a good medicine from a bad medicine? There's you know, double blind experiments and, and reproducibility and, and obviously a biological theories behind it. Uh, so in, in engineering, how do we know good engineering from bad engineering? Well, there's answers. So when it comes to Buddhism, um, what is, uh, how, how is truth differentiated from falsehood? Um, it is very, uh, it is an intuitive insight, uh, just as you said, the little children, how do they know what is the truth? It is very intuitive. Like, for example, you have a child and you tell him uh, that the oven is hot not to touch it, right? So that is only an intellectual knowledge, but he won't understand. He will not, it will not keep him from touching them because he hasn't experienced it intuitively. But once he touches the thing, he will know, oh, that hurts, that is hot, now I know, that is the truth, actually, right? And so it will okay, so, keep him so from empirical touching evidence. Again, right? right, so yeah, empirical evidence is, 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 uh, is bound up to the truth. Okay, and that is okay. the same uh, principle for, uh, for the Buddhists, to find the Buddhist truth. And, um, well, sorry to interrupt, but I just want to okay. make sure I understand two things, because one thing you said was that the truth is intuitive, uh -huh. But the second thing you said was that the truth is empirical, and I'm not sure those are the same things, at least to my way of thinking. So, mm. is it intuitive or is it empirical? Because uh, empirical okay. means, you know, your senses and all that. Intuitive is your instinct. Okay. But um, if, uh, if the oven is hot, that is the empiric, uh, right? But your yeah, instincts tell you to, uh, to remove the hand. That is the instinct, isn't it? To remove the hand in order to prevent any damage from the hand. So I think right. it works together. The empirical and the instinct work together in that case, don't they? Yeah. Now, another – I mean, my daughter, I've told her the stove is hot. She doesn't touch the stove because she trusts me, right, because I don't tell her lies. And so the empirical evidence would be for her, you know, my father has never told me a lie. My, to my father tells me this is hot uh, and it's going to be painful. And therefore, I, like, the empirical evidence is then the consistency of my 
conversations with like the truth value oh, okay. of my conversations with her so she doesn't actually uh-huh. have to touch the stove she just has to trust me oh, okay. which means i have to be consistently honest with her mm-hmm. okay in the buddhist case it doesn't work like that only to intellectually understand the teaching is not enough you have to really experience it yourself and there uh, the main problem is that with our normal sense perception we cannot see the truth we cannot see the absolute truth Uh, because it, we have a distorted perception. And, um, All right, and how is our perception distorted? Okay. Um, our, um, wait, uh, let's skip some items here on my list. The, op- uh, the observation is distorted because um, our mind is always very productive with thinking and planning and remembering and uh, things like that. So we don't have uh, a pure observation. And the, pure the observation sense, would mean what? Shapes, right? Is that For sort of the Kantian of things time, in themselves? Like, I don't see the tree. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, that is what in, in what you do in meditation. You have to um, apply mindfulness to what sense uh, um, object comes right now to you. Either it is some, uh, some sight or sound, smell, taste or touch or a mind object, a thought. You have to be aware that right now I'm seeing the tree, right? That is what is mindfulness and staying in the present moment. And um, in, uh, normally we can't do that over a longer period of time. If you try to observe the flame of a candle for one minute without having any thought about it or being distracted by some other sense object, you will find out that it is not possible to do unless you have uh, had mental training. And now help you to understand what the value is of staring at a candle for a minute. Um, okay, in, in meditation, the meditator finds out that the sense objects are all of, all of a sudden they are experienced differently than he usually experienced them. When you apply a really continu- uh, continuous mindfulness on the objects, you can, um, if you are well trained, you can do that over hours. Then all of a sudden the perception changes, the, conti- the seemingly continuity of perception dissolves and each object is arising and ceasing in an instant. And that happens in an incredible speed from moment to moment. And uh, this holds true not only for the sense objects, but also for the mind objects like uh, volition, feelings, thoughts, intentions, and even the consciousness itself. And uh, there is virtually nothing uh, the mind can hold on to anymore. And that is an extremely unpleasant experience for the meditator. I'm and sorry, also, I just I uh, wanted to understand. So if you if you stare at the candle for a certain amount of time, I just okay. I missed that part. I didn't quite follow what what happens. Things speed up. I, I Ah, okay. To stare at the candle, it's only for you to check that your mind is, uh, you can't control your mind. You can't force your mind to stay for one minute on on the candle flame, right? That is just a, uh, to for you to understand that our minds are so um, shaken, sort of. Huh? They're Going busy. Here and yeah. there, huh? But uh, in the meditation, you don't stare at the candle. You close the eyes and you are mindful for the present moment, like your breath. But all uh, objects that are come, like thoughts, feelings, everything that comes at the present moment, you um, are mindful of it, right? You stay always in the present moment. You sort of flow right. with it. Okay, right. and that uh, and that way you will find out that all the sense objects are not um, as continuous as you have perceived them before. Like a sound, it comes all of a sudden like a vibration. And if you... Um, 
that goes on, goes on. And then you find all at every um, moment of consciousness, you find one sense object arising and ceasing at the same moment. Right. Okay. In I mean, now science science can tell you that sound is a vibration to begin with, right? Yeah. So I'm not but, sure that you've gained something by yeah, understanding that to, which um, science has already described. Mm, uh, it might be, but to experience it, the, um, your mind will gain this intuitive insight in the, of the impermanence, which you can not uh, gain by intellectual thought about your death or something. You can intellectual think about it, but only in this experience and meditation, it will change your uh, inner... Mm, <laughs> You will um, you will see that all the sense objects are not worth clinging to, and only then you can let go of it. You know your desire for all the sense objects ceases by that because you see that you can't hang on to it. it uh, every sense object comes and goes in a moment, and there is nothing to hold on to, even to your own um, what you thought to be your personality. You see that's only a bunch of um, different functions of the mind, uh, which you don't even have control over. You find also that it's not only um, impermanent and unsatisfactory, but also non-self. That means everything happens only due to the universal law of cause and effect. Like, for example, you move an arm to scratch yourself. You think that it was your free will to do that. But in meditation, you find out that it's only caused to... Um, it's due to a cause, like an itch. The itch is the cause, and that's why you raise your hand to, to scratch. So uh, it is difficult to explain intellectually, but it's an intuitive insight that there is really no any inner controller to um, for our actions. It's actually uh, all cause and effect, even our personality. There is no I or me or mine. That part, of course, this uh, non-self part is very difficult to understand without having the experience of meditation itself. But that's, I'm trying to somehow explain it. Into right, no, and, and I think, I mean, I think there's stuff that, that I would accept in, in what you're saying, which, you know, just means that I accept and made true. So, but it seems to me there's a non, non-distinction between the external world and the internal world. So, it, with regards to the internal world, uh, yes, the mind is a chatterbox. And in coming, I mean, I've done meditation, I've done yoga, uh, I've done aromatherapy, and, and so I really, uh, I appreciate the calming of the mind centering, and we can, of course, get stuffed with the, you know, hyperkinetic bats of infinite <laughs> reflection that is, is distracting, and I think a lot of people waste their lives, uh, you know, staring at their toes and worrying about things, so I think that there is some real value in that internalization and self-knowledge. No, there is. I think there is real value, and certainly that's been my experience and the personality is something that is very it's one of these things that when you observe it you change it you know this is the sort of the insight of of some of the more modern scientific uh, methodologies which is that you cannot observe the experiment without changing it and if you are blind to yourself you act in a certain way but when you began to examine the course of your thoughts and the origins of your emotions then you were automatically changing your personality through the examination of your personality. And in that, personality is non-contiguous. It's non-permanent. Uh, and, and also personality is, we think of it as a unity, as, a, as a, I have a personality, you know, like I have a kidney or two, I guess. But the reality in my experience has been, and I've talked about this quite a bit on the show, what I call the Miko system. My experience or understanding of the personality is that it is a, uh, it is a, a, a group of personalities and perspectives and instincts and thoughts and habits and prejudices and philosophies and so on that are all 
uh, interacting with and and striving for truth and some win and some lose and over the course of your life hopefully prejudice falls away and the truth wins but there's a battle in that prejudice wants to mm-hmm. stay alive in the same way that any organism wants to stay alive and there's there's a battle and sometimes that battle is won through force of uh, arms and sometimes that battle is won through lay, the laying down of arms but um, uh, so I, I think that for I would agree with you that that there's great value in the internal view of personality but I don't think that that's the same as like no matter what my self-knowledge the tree in my backyard grows the same way right mm-hmm. unless my self-knowledge is that I really want to chop down the tree, <laughs> tree in the backyard but if I sit home meditating the world goes on as it goes and the, the permanence that is in the outside world I think is distinct from the flux and impermanence that is in the inside world uh, if that makes any sense also the outside world is impermanent and that's uh, we don't realize it really and that's why we suffer also for example we um, we actually we think that we know that we are impermanent that we have to die die sometime but uh, we don't really expect it to happen the next moment and when we are well i mean i i was recently diagnosed with cancer so i wouldn't say that that's too far off from my uh, my thinking so um uh, but of course you know and i uh, i think the very first video i did was called live like you're dying uh, so i've certainly been mindful of death um for quite i read the denial of death in my teens and uh, i've tried to live my life uh, not like i'm about to die because then you don't go to the dentist but um but that death is is uh, always a possibility and and certainly an inevitability uh, but yes certainly the denial of death is uh, is one of the reasons why people can live like they've got all the time in the world to waste. Mm-hmm. And th- this diagnosis like you had, it will uh, also change uh, people's lives often, no? because then they feel the urgency to do something um, sensible with their life. And Actually, also, I have uh, a, I've had, a, mm-hmm. uh, interestingly enough, I've had an enormous reduction in urgency. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough. I mean, I've had this massive calming of my, my thoughts uh, and really? um, uh, a massive mm-hmm. reduction in my cares and concerns. Um, and so, uh, and I think that's because, I mean, like if, if I get a brain clot during this conversation and die, uh, I think I have done the greatest possible good that I can do for the world in the work that I've done over the course of my life uh, and, uh, you know, for the world as a whole through, through this conversation. So uh, just, you know, person, person, person to person, I've had actually a huge reduction in inner chatter uh, since, since the diagnosis because uh, compared to the challenge of cancer, uh, other concerns and considerations seem pretty insignificant and i you know of course it's my hope and goal that this will uh this will continue um you know it it will it will either not continue because i'm dead or hopefully it won't continue because i'm alive and maintain this kind of perspective i I think it's possible uh, if i'm remained mindful of of that but um there yeah so i mean but i think that 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 inner focus uh, that the buddhists have i think is is very important mindfulness self-exploration and listening to your thoughts, but not entirely passively, like with the goal of, of calming the endless chatterbox. Because we have a fight-or-flight mechanism that generally is continually scanning our environment, which was fine when we lived in the jungle and there was a danger behind every tree. But I think that we have capacities for other things now that are much more relaxed and, and peaceful possibilities. But we still have, I think, the great challenge of the fight-or-flight mechanism that was developed to keep us alive that isn't quite as necessary as it used to be. The dangers in our life tend not to be something that we can fight or flee or freeze in the face of. Uh, And so I certainly agree with that. I think that's a a great possibility that modern living to some degree has provided us, which is the ability to not fret. Uh, But I think I agree with you that it takes inner reflection and a a commitment to, to slow down the racing brain. 
And then uh, I wanted to say something about your argument that you said the suffering can't be caused by craving and attachment. <laughs> that is the second noble truth, right? And you mentioned that toothache you have. You said the, the suffering doesn't come from my attachment. It comes from the nerve ends, right? But yeah. if you think of a mind state, like uh, you are very much absorbed in an interesting book or you are so enthusiastic in love or you won in the lottery or something, then some uh, pain might not be causing any suffering comfortable or something, but not really uh, causing a suffering. Uh, uh, in another situation, it would have caused you considerable suffering, right? And um, in meditation, you can experience that in, to a much higher degree. Even extreme pain can be um, experienced with equanimity and or even with joy, because pain is a very good object to gain insights. And um, so that shows the meditator that only the state of mind, how you relate to the object, Uh, induces, um, if it is aversion, then it induces suffering. But if is equanimity is there or clear comprehension, then there is no suffering. So that is actually uh, the meditator finds the truth of the second, uh, the second noble truth. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly recognize that there are pain management techniques that can help diminish pain. But the source of the, I mean, you can do things to, to deal with the pain, but the source of the pain still remains as the nerve endings, right? Because if you don't have the toothache, that you don't have the pain to manage, right? It doesn't mean that that, 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 can, that completely dictates how you respond to the pain, but the source of that which you have to manage. You know, like if I'm just, if I'm wrestling an alligator, then I can beat the alligator. But the, the reason I'm wrestling is because of the alligator. If that, so, the, I mean, I'm still wrestling with the, the pain the nervous pain response, the nerve-based pain response, and I can do things to, admin, to to manage it, but what I'm managing is still body-based and not mental-based. Yeah, that is true, but the Buddha referred, of course, to the mental uh, suffering when he said, uh, uh, talked about the second noble truth that was the, the mental suffering, because I think that is also much, much uh, higher than the physical suffering most of the time. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, for the people who's, um, you know, I was, um, I was just talking to a guy from, Uh, Chile, and he was talking about life under the Pinochet regime, where you know the government would disappear people, right? So I mean, if your if your husband or your wife just gets snatched black back by the government and locked away or killed, mm. I mean, there's considerable mental anguish to do with that. But that's because of somebody doing an evil action in your environment. And yes, there's things that you can do to to manage that pain, uh, but the the source of the pain is is and then there's mental suffering. It's not a physical pain, but. Um, the source of that is still external to you and it's the result of evil actions done by others, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, Marshall Rosenberg, he refers to, um, he was doing a lot of this um, mediating with uh, war tribes in Africa or so. He says there are people who, even if members of their families have been killed, they are not having any anger, maybe not due to Buddhism, but <laughs> due to some, I don't know, karma. So uh, not necessarily you have to suffer so much uh, from even from losses of um, members of the family. It's the, your way of thinking, you know, your way, how you relate to it. That's the most important thing, not what really Wait, happens. So you're saying that, that family members get killed and they, they experience no suffering or just no anger? I mean, there's more suffering, of course, than anger. I think that you can... Uh, The suffering comes from the, the thinking. When you think about the loss you have, of course, normal people without mental training, they suffer, of course. But uh, if you have enough mental um, training, you don't necessarily have to suffer over loss. 
so a family member gets murdered and you the, the goal or the ideal in the Buddhist system is to not experience any negative emotions from that or, or mm-hmm. d- distressing emotions. Yeah, well, that is a very high goal. I think only the enlightened people can reach that. No, but that's, that, that would be the goal, right? That would be the idea. Mm-hmm. Yes, because there is actually no, nothing to suffer about because we all have to separate some time. There. To see the impermanence, the reality, we will uh, separate. Some, uh, sooner or later we have to separate and we will meet again because we also believe in the reincarnation. So uh, if we are not happy, but we will meet again. <laughs> so there's no right. reason okay. to suffer. So, yeah? so, as far as the differentiation between truth and falsehood, there is no, uh, as far as I understand it, there's no scientific or empirical evidence for reincarnation, right? For the essence of the personality to survive the body's uh, demise. Yeah, there is no evidence. I don't think, uh, unless you, um, of course, in meditation, it seems that you can see your previous rebirths. That is for the, that person, I think that is a kind of an empirical evidence. But of course, I myself, if I don't have that experience in meditation, I can't prove it. Well, and a subjective experience is not objective proof, right? I mean, the mind, mm. every night I dream the most amazing, wonderful, and occasionally terrifying things. Uh, <laughs> like the other night I dreamt uh, I was in Justin Bieber's band. Don't ask me why. I haven't got around to f- figuring that one out yet. But um, uh, that is uh, not evidence that I was in Justin Bieber's band. That That is simply really? evidence mm-hmm. that... Um, uh, that is simply evidence that I had a subjective experience that was incredibly vivid to me. Uh, but the differentiation, this is what I was asking about, the differentiation between truth and falsehood. Uh, it is well known, of course, that if you if you remove external stimuli from the mind, in general, the mind will manufacture its own stimuli. So if you put people in isolation tanks in lukewarm water, they get hallucinations. You know, relatively mm-hmm. quickly, the mind manufactures its own stimulation in the absence of external stimulation. Meditation is one of these states which lends you to be prone to hallucinations and of course they, they experience you experience them as subjectively very vivid but they don't tell you anything about the external world so the fact that people who believe in reincarnation who then remove external stimuli from their mind may have visions or beliefs about um, reincarnation simply proves that the mind manufactures its own stimuli generally according to um, particular cultural prejudices or beliefs right they tend to flow uh, so you, you know religious people will have either, religious visions and so on uh, but that is not the same as, as an objective truth. At least that would be my argument. But you, uh, you, can't, uh, you don't have proof that it's only a hallucination either. We can't, from the outside, we can't prove either if it is a true um, recall of the past or if it's a, an, a hallucination. But this is, this is the wonderful laziness of the empirical, though, which is that you don't actually have to disprove that it's a hallucination. The person who has a hallucination has to prove that it's true. I don't, like, I don't have to lift a finger to, to if somebody says reincarnation is true because I, I had this vision that I was, I was, you know, lived in ancient Egypt. Uh, I don't actually have to lift a finger for, for that to remain a false statement. The person who is mm-hmm. making the, the claim and, you know, the more outlandish the claim, the more extreme the requirements of proof. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And I would be very concerned about a belief system that had at its, as its core the ideal that we should not suffer because we're all going to come back in another life while having mm-hmm. no empirical or scientific proof of that whatsoever. That is, to me, um, having a high standard of emotional detachment, which, if it's not true, is, is invalid, right? Like, if we don't come back, then it would make more sense to grieve the people who we will never get to talk to again in our life. And so if people are saying that the emotional state should follow the, the belief system when the belief system is not only irrational but has never been proven, I think that's giving people a very dangerous relationship with their own emotions. You know, it, to me, that's as bad as saying where well, you see, you know, all Jews are money-grubbing people who want to kill Christians. 
and then then somebody saying, well, then I, you know, I have a problem with Jews. It's like, well, but if that's not true, then the emotional response is not true. And if it's not true that we all get to meet again and come back, then the emotional response of detachment is invalid and false. And um, uh, th- therefore, it becomes dangerous. Like false beliefs lead to false emotions, uh, and the false emotions can be extremely dangerous. And if the false emotion is a detachment from emotion, then you're treating, you're teaching people not to have their sort of rich and valid emotional experiences based upon the delusion that they're going to meet again, which is, you know, I mean, you can go to Christian families and saying, well, why are you upset about your son uh, dying? Because now he's, he's in heaven and you're going to meet him again. But I don't think that would but, be um, particularly fair. And that, but even that would be in accordance with their belief system. Sorry, go ahead. But the, the Buddhists, they don't teach people all, all of that. What I told you are experiences you get in meditation. Nobody teaches you or tells you it is like this, 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 uh, to not to have any emotions or so. It's not like that, that you are indoctrinated like maybe in other religions. It's only I just want to tell you what you yourself experience in meditation. And unless you do the meditation yourself, that Vipassana meditation, that special inside meditation, you will... You can't really uh, evaluate its truth, you know, that's the problem. <laughs> Everybody has right. to find out himself if it's true or not. You can't prove it to anybody else unless you practice it yourself. That's the, the thing. Right, and, and that to me seems like a dodge. You know, that's like saying, well, this is what we believe. You know, we believe in reincarnation. Well, where's the proof? Well, there's no proof. You just have to believe it. Or not. You don't have, you it's don't like, have okay, well, then you're not talking, you're, you're talking about a subjective experience, then you're not talking about an objective truth. When you say reincarnation, you're talking about an objective truth, right? Because reincarnation cannot be a subjective experience, because if subjectivity dies at death, then there is no reincarnation, and therefore, a subjective experience of reincarnation can't be true. If you're saying reincarnation, you're saying an objective metaphysical truth. And if then you say, when challenged on the proof for that, you say, well, you either believe it or you don't. It's a subjective belief. Well, then it can't be both. This is exactly the same argument for, in a religion. People say, well, I believe in God. Well, no, either God exists and you then accept passively the objective existence of God, or you have a belief in your head about a deity, which then doesn't translate to anything real that's outside. But the deity claim is a claim for an external reality outside your mind, right? And, and so if reincarnation is a truth claim about the universe, about reality, about life, then you can't then use the dodge of saying, well, it's a subjective experience that you get to when you meditate, uh, because those two things are not compatible. If you're making a truth claim about some external thing, then it's independent of experience. If you're making a claim about experience, then it's independent of external reality. And that's, I think, the issue, one of the issues that I have with, with Buddhism and other mm. um, uh, forms of belief. But uh, in order to practice um, that form of meditation, uh, you don't actually, when I started that, I wasn't, uh, I didn't have any opinion about reincarnation because I never heard that before. I didn't believe it also. So I just left that aside because it's also not that important, you know, because you, wait, I thought wait, wait, I would no, find sorry. out. If you say, if you say that one of the reasons you shouldn't grieve people's deaths is because you're yeah. going to meet again, it's not unimportant. I mean, that's pretty significant, right? That is something that comes automatically. It's not the aim of the Buddhist meditation not to grieve over the relatives, you know. It's, uh, you want to find out about truth. That is the reason why you meditate in Buddhism. You want to f- uh, overcome that uh, distorted um, perception. And then all the insights come automatically. Well, okay, but see, insights are different from truths, right? So I might have an insight about myself, and of course I had a lot of them and continue to have a lot of them. And these are insights about myself, and they're going to change my behavior in the world. I mean, insights without change is, you know, sort of uh, like building a bridge at the bottom of the ocean. It's a lot of work. doesn't add up to much. 
Uh, but, but insights about myself are distinct from objective truths about the world, right? And it doesn't mean that, that it's like if I say um, I'm insecure about uh, my ability to break dance, you know, which I probably would be, uh, then uh, I'm sp- saying a truth about myself, but I'm not saying an objective truth that's out there in the world other than mm-hmm. the reality that my brain is out there in the world. And so um, when I'm making an objective truth statement, then I'm making something, a, a, a truth statement that's independent of subjective experience. Like if I say there's a tree in my backyard, that's independent of my meditation. And so my concern is if the Buddhism is around self-knowledge and know yourself and, and, and look inward and so on, fantastic. I think that's great. Uh, that to me is a, a subset of the Socratic dictum, know thyself. Uh, or the unexamined life is not worth living, which unfortunately but, uh, is not true. Most people but, find it very worth living to avoid examining themselves. But if I'm making true statements about the world, about immortality, about, about reincarnation, about whatever, then that's distinct from my looking inwards. Uh, and, and that's, I think, where the, where the barrier lies, where it's no longer a philosophy of self-knowledge but becomes a philosophy of the world. Then it, it moves into the realm where you do have to have objective empirical evidence, rational arguments, and so on. But the problem is that with our untrained minds, we cannot uh, perceive the truth, you know, that is the problem. There is this hurdle. We are all deluded by our um, minds that are always distracted, and uh, mostly they are distracted by, by these three roots, the greed, hatred, and delusion. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, and we can overcome that only by this mental training, otherwise there but is no see, way but to... This is, uh, but this is sorry to interrupt, but that's just out-and-out out manipulation. And that's kind of insulting to people, which is to say, look, if you don't believe what I believe, then you're just mm-hmm. deluded. And once you get mm-hmm. rid of your delusions, you'll believe what I believe, even though mm-hmm. I have no proof for it. I mean, that's just manipulative. And it is an appeal to people's insecurity. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't care for people to say to me, well, reincarnation is true, and if you don't believe it, you're just deluded. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. a tautology. That's just a circular argument. It doesn't add anything to any truth value. Like, if yeah, you question what I believe, and if you ask me for evidence, that's because you're deluded and, are, and are, your thinking is mistaken. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, correct my mistake. But the way yeah, that yeah, you correct true. my mistake is not to mm-hmm. demand that I believe what you believe. That's just insulting. And that's kind of narcissistic, mm-hmm. right? To say, well, if you believe what I believe, you'd be correct. Well, anyone can say that about anything. You know, well, the reason that you are not a Nazi is because you're deluded. And as soon as you accept Nazism, you will have the truth. It's like, no, 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 no. If you want me to accept the belief system, particularly one that's making mm-hmm. empirical claims, show me the evidence. Don't just insult. I don't mean you personally, but don't just the belief system can't just insult me and say, well, the reason I don't believe it's supposed truth is because I'm deluded. It's like, no, 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 no. That's no. You can just insult me and then say, well, as soon as I spend 10 years staring at my navel, I'll believe what you believe. <laughs> no, no. Give me some evidence. Give me some proof. That's okay. not what scientists I don't see, say. That uh, scientists don't say, well, you'll you'll accept Newton's gravity once you meditate on Newton's gravity for ten years, but we can't prove any of it to you. It's like, no, 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 no. They 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 take the burden of proof and work with it. I see your point, but uh, I don't. Uh see any other way of proving it you know that's the problem well you're right <laughs> so, there is you're, you're absolutely right about that because you can't prove reincarnation or at least if they, maybe I, you look, try on this. i'd love it if, if reincarnation were true i think that'd be fantastic i mean maybe I, what, you what, try what, on these gentlemen you know i'm sorry on these gentlemen which i mentioned to you maybe they can give you a better answer than me no no i don't want an answer i want proof <laughs> You know, people get yeah, claim the about the perpetuity of human personality, uh, you know, I need me some proof, of course, right? Because otherwise, how am I going to differentiate them from any other con men or women who want to just get me to believe what they believe rather than prove it to me? I don't want people to appeal to my insecurity. I don't want people to insult me. I don't want people to tell me that I'm deluded unless I believe what they believe. That, to me, is not philosophy. That is just a form of emotional abuse and manipulation. Uh, what I want is for people to say, 
look, I understand that you're skeptical because that's the work that I do. Look, I'm talking about a, a society with no government. I'm talking about uh, adult relationships being voluntary. I'm talking about uh, people stopping 95% of the kind of parenting that they're doing and doing the exact reverse. I get that the burden of proof is upon me. Like, I don't say to people, listen, just keep listening to my podcast until you agree with me. <laughs> Put them on auto loop and sit there and, you know, lower all your intellectual defenses and listen to me while you're sleeping and paint my slogans on your walls until you believe what it is that, uh, that I believe, right? Yeah, I And understand. I don't uh, – that's not fair. You know, the burden of proof remains upon me to establish the validity of what it is that I'm talking about, right? And that's why yes. I worked – the scientific, rational, empirical evidence. So I, I, I make the moral arguments, say, against spanking, right? I make the moral arguments, which I've made repeatedly, about the immorality of initiating force against children. And I also provide the empirical evidence of the destructive effects of spanking upon children. Uh, so that's the reason and the evidence that I, I keep talking about. But even though it's completely obvious to me, the burden of proof remains upon me to make the case that is against people's general cultural prejudices, but to simply say you just need to meditate on spanking children until you agree with me uh, is not to make an argument and, and to say that anybody who disagrees with me about anything is deluded and needs to spend 10 years meditating on it until they agree with me is not to make an argument, but to yeah, kind yeah. of insult people and say that they're deluded because they disagree. And I think that's not the case. Uh, people can disagree with me and be, be very rational uh, and, you know, uh, and they, can be, they can even have good evidence behind them. And then we need to have you know, who has the better reason and evidence behind them is the case that we make. But um, uh, I think and, – and that's to me something as obvious as spanking if I was going to try to make the case of reincarnation, uh, which is a truly radical uh, departure from the empiricism and science and rationality of our everyday existence. Uh, I mean what an extraordinary amount of proof that I would need to bring to bear on that and uh, just going around insulting people by saying that they're uh, deluded and um, uh, irrational, not, not for any – reason that I can point out, but just because they don't agree with me fundamentally, uh, is, is the, um, is argument by intimidation. It's not even an argument. Okay. Sorry. I didn't want to, uh, um, insult you. No, but, but you do understand that you did call me deluded for disagreeing, right? <laughs> Without providing any empirical evidence. Deluded, you know? Yeah, no, sorry, I understand yeah. that. I understand that. But there's people who are less deluded who agree with the Buddhists, right? And um, it, it, it is insulting. Uh, it's not insulting to call me deluded if I am, in fact, deluded, right? It's, not, it's just a statement of truth, right? But if, if you're going to call me deluded and then not provide any evidence or reasons as to why, then it's just an insult, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm honestly not saying that you, uh, my German friend, are, are personally insulting me. I'm just saying that that's the implications of this methodology, if I can call it a methodology, of approaching truth and changing people's minds. Mm. It's like saying, you know, you wouldn't be an atheist if you accepted Jesus. And therefore, you should not be an atheist. It's like, no, no, <laughs> that's not, you know, everybody who doesn't accept Jesus is deluded. And uh, they need to go and uh, pray for 10 years until they accept Jesus, and then they will know the truth. It's like, that's just kind of an insult, which is to say the fact that I have some skepticism about the existence, let alone the divinity of Jesus, um, is, it, you don't solve it by just saying, well, that's deluded. And, and if you pray yeah, for that 10 is years, true. That is not a good right. argument. Right. And, and there yeah. may be great arguments for it. It's just that that wouldn't be one of them, right?
I can't hear you properly. Oh, sorry. I was saying that there may be great arguments for the existence and divinity of Jesus, but but that just wouldn't be one of them, right? Which is you're deluded mm. if you don't believe. Yeah, yeah, of course not. And so I'll I'll leave you with the challenge, and I hope you will call back in because I, you know, again, I really want to ma- remain open-minded, which doesn't mean slutty-minded, um, <laughs> but I want okay. to remain open-minded. <laughs> and if there are good arguments, I'm, you know, you know, bring me the the reason of the evidence, and I will be, you know, I always try to bow to those 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 twin deities. Um, but um, I think as yet uh, it remains um, uh, unproven. But I'm certainly, you know, if you want to do the research and see if you can find some of the rational and evidentiary arguments for, for these perspectives, I'm certainly happy to hear them. Okay. All right. And thank you so much for calling in. Listen, I, I always do okay. want to invite in, you know, uh, perspectives that differ from mine. <laughs> right. Of course. Right. I mean, uh, there's certainly no monopoly uh, of, of, of truth here. Right. Hopefully there's uh, an excellence of methodology, but, you know, we're all fallible, which is why we need philosophy. So uh, I really do appreciate you, you calling in and I hope that you will do some more research and call back. So, um, thank okay. you so much, and uh, I hope okay. that you're enjoying. Uh, I hope you're enjoying life in Germany. I went when I was very young, and I apparently could speak the language at one point rather fluently. But that has somewhat tragically diminished over time through disuse. But I uh, thank you so much for calling in, and um, I will certainly meditate upon what you've said. So, okay. thank uh, and, and thank you. Uh, Thank you, everyone, so much. I believe we're out of time. What time is it? Oh, dear God. Yes, we are. Uh, so uh, thank you, everybody, so much for uh, calling in, for listening, for challenging, for conversing, for opening your hearts and minds. I hugely appreciate it. It would be a slightly different show uh, with lots of gaps, with nobody talking. So <laughs> I hugely appreciate people calling in. If you would like to help out, uh, I would really, really appreciate it. My, uh, you know, my my energy level is, is somewhat diminished. You know, it's funny. The, the chemo is not too too bad but i definitely have to nap in the afternoon um you know my my uh, red blood cell count is low which means my muscles and brain are not quite as oxygenated as they could be i'm still trying to do some exercise to to keep that flowing as much as possible but definitely energy is down a tad and uh, i'm still only halfway through so that's going to get worse and that actually lasts for a month or two after uh, chemo as well so if my productivity is down i hope that you will uh, forgive me, um, but um, I do have to, you know, doctor's orders are to rest when I'm tired. And that's not something that comes enormously naturally to me, but I'm certainly doing my best to to listen to what uh, the good doctors have to say. So um, anyway, if, you, if you'd like to help out, and, and please, I hope that you won't um, withhold support for lack of productivity, but rather sympathize with uh, the challenges of this kind of ailment, uh, you can go to fdrurl.com forward slash donate. Um, it's a, I was trying to explain this to a friend of mine the other day. It's a funny little sensation being low on red. I mean, I've never had anything like this before. I've never really been sick before. I've never broken a bone, never spent a night in a hospital. I've just you know, a couple of stitches from bangs and scrapes here and there. But it's sort of like if you've ever been in an, an elevator which is going down, you know that moment when it starts to go down, you just feel like a little light on your feet, a little dizzy, a little disoriented. Uh, it's sort of like that. It's like, it's like falling gently uh, and, and sort of suddenly all the time. So it's an odd kind of sensation. And uh, not, you know, wickedly unpleasant or anything like that, but uh, definitely a different, a different kind of experience. So anyway, fdrurl.com forward slash donate if you'd like to help out with the show. Uh, I would appreciate it. My apologies again to the people who were hoping to see me speak this summer. I'm going to try and do as much as I can remotely, but we'll have to wait and see how that goes. But uh, I simply really can't afford uh, the risk of, of travel, particularly to the U.S., because I'm not going to be able to get insurance for a pre-existing condition. And if I got sick in the U.S., that could be financially pretty catastrophic. 
Uh, so um, I just ended, of course, the danger of being in an enclosed space like an airplane for quite some time with people who have uh, a variety of various ailments. Not good for the immunocompromised. So I apologize for that. But I hope to be rearing back in form next summer. So thanks again to James, as always, for uh, helming the man. And uh, I really appreciate that. As always, I know that it is interfering with his um, Sunday school. So I really appreciate that. And have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week, everyone. I will talk to you soon.